<laughs> Pot of gold. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Ramble by the River. I'm your host, Jeff Nesbitt, and we've got a great show for you this week. It is Saturday, September 4th, 2021. Thank you for being here on The Ramble. I know you have lots of options, and I appreciate you spending your time with me. You can find Ramble by the River on Facebook and Instagram at Ramble by the River, on Twitter at Ramble River Pod, and if you need to get in contact with us for guest suggestions or anything like that, our email can be found in the show notes for this episode, along with any kind of links that you might hear us reference in the show. It has been a really good week for me. I'm excited to be rambling today. It's a good one. I had Hood to Coast last weekend. So Hood to Coast, for those of you who don't know, is a really long ass run. It's a relay race that starts at the top of Mount Hood at a Timberline, Timberline Lodge, which is where they shot the exterior shots for The Shining, which is an interesting fact that I always seem to have to mention. I'm not sure why. But anyway, that's where the race starts. That's not where I started. I, my first leg was not for a ways down the hill there, but at a certain point, I jumped into the race, took the baton, which is a slap bracelet, and carried it for like six miles, handed it off to someone else, got in a van, and then I drove to the next place. I had to pick it up and go on again. So basically, if 12 people, 12 people per team, and you just run for a really, really long time. 200 miles, I think, 199 maybe very close to 200 miles and it's grueling you run all through the night you're the, whenever you're not running you're in a van crammed in a van with a bunch of stinky people and not a lot of good food not a lot of relaxation or anything it's it's grueling but it was fun it was really a good experience I had a weird pain in my abdomen for the entire time and I wasn't sure what that was and it was kind of concerning so that sucked but um, I just ignored it and you know, it wasn't so bad. It actually hurt the least when I was when I was running. I had a lot of pain when I was in the van, and the rest of the time I was fine. Which, I mean, the running part, I was okay, but the yeah, the rest of the riding in the van, walking around, all that stuff, I was in a lot of pain. But I enjoyed it. I had a good time. I had a good. I performed well compared to what I was expecting. I ran way faster than I thought I would just didn't really know what to expect because it's been a while since I've done this event. It's been a while since I've done any kind of extreme running like that at all. So I, I didn't know what to expect and I outperformed my expectations. So I was happy. Uh, let's see, what else? What else is going on? School starting up this week. If you've got kids or if you are a kid or you know, you see kids around, you're seeing them going back to school. So that's cool. They're all wearing masks. They're all packed in tight with masks on it doesn't sound ideal but we got to teach them you got to go back so that's just the way it is I'm happy I like when school starts because that you know gets my kids out of the house and my wife she's a teacher so gets them back in school everyone just seems to do better when there's stuff going on boredom is a problem no matter what idle hands are the devil's tools so yeah that's going on Let's see, crypto's killing it. My my investments are actually performing pretty well this week. It's been a been an up week. That's always a bonus, always a boost to my my uh, disposition. Speaking of disposition, last week's episode I talked a little bit about depression. 
So I figured I'd give you guys an update. I, I feel great again. It's weird, but it just seems to happen like that. I, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but it's kind of like the lights got turned back on. And I don't really know what prompted it or what took it away in the first place. But yesterday morning, I woke up and I had genuine joy in my heart. I was excited about my day. I was looking forward to accomplishing the tasks at hand. And that was, it's almost like I forgot that that was part of life. It's its like depression gives you some kind of temporary amnesia. When you're in it, you forgot what good life feels like. And when you're out of it, sometimes you forget what it feels like to be in it. its It's weird, but long story short, I feel great. I'm on top of the world. Things are good. My uh, podcast stuff is happening and my job's good. Things are good. God is good. Life is good. I'm happy. So yeah, if you're one of those people who do suffer from depression, just trust me, keep on grinding. It's going to get better. At some point, there will be relief and you never know what it's going to be. Sometimes it's nothing that you would expect, but I don't know. I hate talking about depression, but it always seems to come up, and it's such a huge issue in our world that it's probably something we should be talking about. But not today. What I'm talking about today is rambledbytheriver.com. Yesterday, I put in a little work on the website, and I added a donation link and more links to the Patreon, and I put a picture of myself on there. And it's, you know, starting to come together a little bit, starting to come together a little bit. And it's motivating to see progress just in any way. But yeah, so if you're one of those few people who have requested that I do a donation link because not everybody is ready to subscribe and you still want to support the show. Yeah, go to ramblebytheriver.com, click on the button that says donate now, and that will take you to a landing page where PayPal will guide you through the rest of the donation process. Super easy. You'll have to let me know if it works. Nobody has used the link yet. It's brand new, so you might be the first. And if you do, thank you so much. I really appreciate the support. Speaking of support, we have new Patreon subscribers. Shout out to CJ Hawkinson, good buddy of mine. Tiffany Turner, friend of the show. Melissa Nesbitt. Sounds familiar. And Tara Mead, another friend of mine from back in the day, actually. Thank you guys so much for being part of the Ram Fam. All these people have subscribed to the Patreon, so they are now able to access the exclusive content only for the exclusive members of the Patreon. Thank you guys again. It really, really means a lot. So speaking of the Patreon, actually, we are getting it popping. Things are going off there, and it's been kind of a liberating feeling. I was I put off doing the Patreon forever because it's stressful and involves money and it's just like fuck, I don't want to deal with that stuff. Once once I start charging or once I start asking money for what I'm offering, all everything changes. It becomes less of a gift and more of like a service. I have more of a responsibility to provide quality content. I mean more than zero. My responsibility when it's free is zero, so I can do what I want, make what I want. And I don't know anybody's shit, but I do owe these people shit. They deserve something worth listening to. So I'm trying really hard to create quality content, and I'm really enjoying it. I like having standards. I love knowing that I have a deadline or uh, expectations or something, some kind of a goal to meet. It gives you structure. 
So yeah, I have been putting up some stuff on Patreon, working on some bonus content drops that I have not put out yet, and they're fun. They're real fun because they're simple. I'm taking stuff that I already had and repackaging it and, and making it into something new. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's a good process, and I, I really enjoy it. Beyond that, the Patreon is cool because it's liberating. I know ahead of time that everybody who's going to listen to whatever it is I put on there chose to be there. Nobody's going to accidentally stumble into it and accidentally register and pay uh, $3 to join this thing on accident and then be offended by the, you know, hearing me talk about, I don't know, whatever crazy shit I'm talking about. But it's nice because I, I, I just know that I just know that I can trust my listeners. I already feel like this sense of connectedness with them that I didn't have with the public audience, the free audience. I love that audience too. It's also a lot of fun and I get a lot out of it, but it's not the same thing. And I, I regret not starting a Patreon sooner. This is, it's really cool. What I'm realizing is that it's a community. There's a place for messaging. There, like you can talk to the people directly. They can talk to me directly. I can provide individualized content and, you know, access to whatever. I can just really make it special. And it's great. I really enjoy it. So if you want to be part of the community, join the Ram Fam. Go to patreon.com slash ramblebytheriver and subscribe. I get actually emotional talking about it because it has been such a fucking hard process getting here just to get to this point. Just to produce 40-something episodes, I, I have gone through a lot of emotional turmoil. It's very, very stressful. And some days I'm just like, why are you doing this yourself, man? Why? And I don't know why. I don't know the answer to that question. But I still like doing it. Maybe I'm just addicted to the rush. Maybe I just like moving and shaking, you know? I like putting something into the world that wasn't there before. I know I like that. That's creativity right there. Making something. But now, not only am I making something like a creative product, I'm making new friends. I'm building relationships. I'm building community. I'm doing things indirectly that I wanted from the beginning. The whole reason I started this show was to build community. I missed people. I just wanted to get somebody in here to talk. Dig into their brain. See what it's like in there. Walk around a bit. I always take off my shoes. I like people, but people are complicated and they're not always accessible. So I don't know. I'm having a blast. I really enjoy, I really enjoy all this. You guys are the best. I love you so much. And I just can't, I just cannot express how grateful I am. My guest today is the type of person that I want to be around because I know she'll make me be a better version of myself. She's that type of person who you automatically just kind of want approval from. Not necessarily because of who she is or what she's able to do for you or anything like that, but just because I, I can recognize in her right away that this is a person who has standards and morals and is not constantly trying to bend to fit the, the will of whoever's watching. She's a person who has a backbone, person who can take responsibility for her choices and her decisions, and it's fucking refreshing. It was really nice to just sit down and have a real conversation with somebody who was just trying to be real. 
That's so rare these days. It's so hard to find that. Everybody's so scared. Everybody's so worried about offending people or being politically correct. My guest today doesn't force every single thought she has through the political correction machine because she already has moral standards in place. She doesn't need to do that because she's already confident that the things she does and says are going to come from a place of benevolence. I don't want to blow too much smoke up her ass. I don't think she would even like that. But I was really impressed with this woman. She made me want to be a better version of myself. She made me feel motivated and inspired from a business point of view and from a social point of view and from a parenting point of view. She was just really great. And she couldn't have come in here at a better time. I needed this conversation. And you can kind of hear it in my voice. I'm like gleaming little bits of knowledge from this person that... I don't know if she was even prepared to share with me, but I just like, I recognize that she's an expert in living the life that I want. And that not in the specifics of it, but just in the way that she does it. She's figured something out. I'm so glad I had the privilege of sharing this podcast studio with her for two hours. It was truly an honor. I hope she starts her own podcast. I would subscribe immediately. She's got a great voice too. Really, really good. I'll stop beating around the bush. I'll let you find that out for yourself. She owns the top bar in Astoria, Oregon. It's called Worker's Tavern. She's a wife and a mother of three healthy young men. She's an author with over 50 published articles in magazines and books, and she has written her own book called Licking Flames. She's currently working on her next book, which is a collection of personal stories from her travels around the world. She's a self-proclaimed gangster with mom boobs, and she is a genuine American badass. Please give it up for Diana Kirk. I could really use a change of scenery. Yeah. Everybody's smoking all the greenery. Yeah. Close the match because they were handed down to me. But I'm still fly. I'm still fly. I know. I'm still fly. I'm still fly. Let's go. It could all be worse. I could be a hater like you. It could all be worse. Poison's gonna chew you from the inside out. So right now, say it with your chest now. Say it with your chest I'm now. Young, I'm free. Can't nobody take me here and now. It's my time to run it out. It's my time. It's my time. It's my time to run. little volume switch there on the front mm-hmm. if you have it around nine o'clock it's pretty good and i'll let you know yeah, if you're right. if you're too loud or anything but so far it looks great i can wake babies with my cry so <laughs> well we don't have any babies out here to wake <laughs> but um yeah let's i'll let's get my list out and make sure i don't forget anything do you have set questions no but i have little notes where if, if i forget to mention certain things I'll, halfway through i'll remember and It'll throw us off. Did you paint this when you were? I did. During COVID? Uh, Yep. That was the first stage of this whole podcast project. It was just something to do. Yeah. 
I once I decided I was going to start a podcast, which was going to be on YouTube. Yeah, I was like, I need a good background for recording. Because a lot of podcasts, people don't do a good background. Yeah, a exactly. Lot of them. Or bad lighting or anything. The bad lighting drives me nuts on videos. Yeah, yeah. me too. Actually, it drives sound. me nuts in restaurants and bars as well. Yeah. I can't stand it. You know, um, Cannery Pier Hotel just put in this really cool metal installation in their front, and it's a mountain landscape that's a lot like this, done with metal, and there's water that comes down, and the ironworks guy came in the bar and showed me photos. I haven't gone to see the final, but if you ever pull in there and look, it looks a lot like your mountains. I will have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, Sounds yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, okay. Tangents. Perfectly fine. So I'm, I'm pretty good at tangents. Okay, cool. That those they end up usually being the best content. Sure. Because there's like, yeah, you get unexpected stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And do you have any questions for me before we get going? How far out are you behind? Like, how if you record now, how far until you put it out there? A few weeks. Oh, uh, okay. Usually, I was doing ten days, but I got way ahead on interviews so i had a whole bunch of interviews in the can and so i haven't done an interview for a month um or i did have done one done one but most of them have been online lately <clears throat> which are way harder they're not a lot of fun no it's so true it's so incredibly true you've got to see someone's small nuances you don't even realize how much you read them you know yeah okay Let's see. I'm going to figure out how to turn this monitor off. I think we're good. Feeling better about it? Yeah. The new system? A little called bit. Called Audacity? Yeah. It's such a good word. It is. It's mm-hmm. a perfect name for an audio software. And it's it's really simple. It's <clears throat> I've just been using GarageBand, which mm-hmm. is yeah. even more simple. Right. So I'm just getting used to it. And I've I had a couple where... I tried this and I thought it worked and then I went back later and the audio file was bad. It only got one track. So I got the guest and I'm like off in the background. So that's a bummer. But Right. Then you edit yourself in and it just sounds like it. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, let's just, let's just get going. All right. I did an interview on uh, NPR and we did the whole interview and the uh, guy and I had a great rapport. We were laughing. We were talking politics. We were talking all kinds of stuff. And the next day they called me and said the entire file was corrupt and we had to do it again and it didn't have the same, it just didn't have the same magic and Mm -hmm. it was such a bummer because I tried to repeat it, but I couldn't keep up that level of kind of like energy and stuff. And it was like one of the worst moments when you finally make it on NPR and that's what happens. It was a bummer. That's terrible. Did you have to redo it right away? Yeah, because we were supposed to be on like that weekend. And so I think it was the next day and I was at my friend's house down in Texas and I was using her son's like gaming headphone and microwave microphone and staring at a wall at a desk because it was the quietest room. So like it was even the environment was like totally bizarre. Whereas the day before it was really fun because her chihuahuas kept running into the room. So it was like this weird little playfulness, playfulness to it the whole time. And then the next day it was just blank because I was kind of tired after that. And you're like trying to go back through the conversation. Yeah, and he touched it. on the same things and it didn't feel the same at all because he already knew what my answer was going to be. But it was lesson learned. I mean, it wasn't my fault. I did my best. But that stuff happens when you record for sure. Yeah. yeah. But NPR, that's a, that's a big deal. It was a really big deal. I tried super hard to get on podcasts when my book came out and I couldn't believe how hard it was and then I got on a TV show, and when I was in the green room, there was a guy sitting next to me who owned a brewery, 
And I was telling him how hard it was for me to get on podcasts. And he's like, really? I've been on like 30. <laughs> That's all. Because you talk about beer. And yep. there's a lot of beer podcasts. But That's true. No. And um, so I finally put it on social media. I was like, I have been trying so hard and I can't do this. I didn't even care what the podcast was at all. And then one random friend, Facebook friend that I've never met in Australia said, I used to do drugs with this guy who's now a host on NPR. Like, that's how I met him as we were in N.A. together. And I'll give him a call. And the next thing I know, the producer called me and set up this whole thing. And I was like, whoa, that was kind of an amazing, amazingly odd connection. Yes, but I took it. It was really fun. And then that host asked me afterwards to record to actually he wanted a co-host and he wanted me to um, test for that. So we we actually did a, a test for that. And then. In another weird twist, he had a massive heart attack. Oh, bummer. He didn't. He was fine. But after that, he was like, I need to get out of radio. It's too stressful. And I was always this close. Yeah, I don't know if I wanted. Yeah, I didn't know stressful. if I wanted to co-host it. But uh, it was fun. It was a fun experience from beginning to end. And sometimes that's all I really care about. I listened to you do a talk on YouTube mm -hmm. this morning. And I was like, oh, this is going to be Slam dunk. You have a very good voice for it. Thank and you. Your flow is good. You you kind of hosted it. I'm not even sure what the event was, but you read a few excerpts from your book and it sounded great. You sounded very professional up there. So I was I was looking forward to this. Uh it was at hard. the Cala Theater, I think, in Astoria. Mm -hmm. yeah. I did a show there when my book came out. Um I had a couple openers for it. That was really, really fun. And I met some really great People, including the editor for Coast Weekend uh, there, and we ended up doing like a big interview for Coast Weekend, and that was a that was a really fun night. It was one of my first really big kind of performances on a stage. I love the stage. I don't mind being in front of people. It doesn't really scare me. Um, that's not true. When I'm in front of city council, it's a little different. I get a little nervous there, but in, mainly because I'm afraid I'm going to swear because mm -hmm. I really have a foul mouth. But uh, no, it was it was a fun night, and and everybody there was excited, and the whole I, there were so many more people showed up than I had expected, and it was really cool to have fifty people just show up just for me. It was that awesome. That is cool. It was really awesome, and I I love when you get the right people at a performance because I've definitely been at performances where I'm like, this isn't, these aren't my people, mm -hmm. and then it's quiet and it's silent, and you just nothing feels worse. Uh, Oh my God, when you make a risky joke yeah. and it just doesn't land, right? I want to die. I do that on here often. I'll probably do it today. Yeah, it <laughs> happens a lot. I mean, it happens in the in my bar too, but uh, the worst I ever had, and it's now become a story that I have told on repeat, which is great. I did a show at Pal's Bookstore, and when you are a writer and you get to do a show at Pal's, that's the ultimate. Fourth floor, they have a very um, well-known um, thing you stand in front of that's a stack of books, and everybody wants their photo in front of the stack of books on the fourth floor. I love floor. Pal's. Yeah. So I got to do this show, and it was a group of people. It was a whole bunch of people. And um, they had me go on last because, again, I have a foul mouth. And I, closer. Yeah, I was a closer. I was the closer. And uh, they're the... I don't know, maybe there was about 100 people there. And I got up and I I could tell that the crowd was really young. And up to that point, every reader before me was telling the most depressing stories because they were all like mid-20s writers. I mean, it was nothing but mental health stories. And I'm that's not my thing at all. So I was like, I know, I'll like go in and like, you know, Steve Martin, I'm like the fun and crazy guy or whatever. And I told this story and it's called Mom Boobs. And the story is about how 
I went to a, a party. I went to an after party in Detroit in this warehouse. I'm 45 years old. I met these people in a warehouse in Detroit. And uh, they said, come to this party. And I was like, I don't, what do you mean? I don't know anything about this warehouse party. And they dragged me along. I end up in a party where everybody is so high. They're like dragging their legs behind them. And I become this weird mom. And I go in this bathroom to escape the oddness. And there's like a guy in there shooting up. And I was like, what the hell am I doing here? So I finally sit down in a chair at the party and just watch everybody. And a drug dealer comes and sits next to me. And I proceed to teach him how to open an LLC. Mm -hmm. That's what the story is about. And the last line of the story is because I'm all gangsta with mom boobs. That's the name of the story. Well, as I'm reading this story to this group of young people, nobody is laughing. Nobody is getting it. Everybody's either tired or bored. But there's one guy in the front audience who's smiling and laughing the whole time. So I just like hyper focus on him because there's 100 people and one person's listening. And I think it'll be super fun. <laughs> I was just in the moment where I decide in the end to do this like motion where I like lick my fingers and rub my nipples like I'm some sort of weird stripper girl. Mm -hmm. And I, as I say, because I'm all gangsta in mom boobs, literally it was crickets. And that's the end of the story. And nobody got that the story was even over. Oh, yeah, that's painful. And I'm like, I now understand every comedian I've ever heard talk about flopping in front of a crowd. Yeah, nothing worse than the bomb. Oh, God, it was What awful. about the guy in the front? He didn't love the mom boobs? He did. In fact, he came up afterwards. I was signing books. And I think I sold five. And he came up and he said, you remind me, <laughs> you remind me so much of my mother. And I was like, <laughs> thanks. Mm -hmm. I guess your mom is inappropriate as well. But lesson learned, it was, it was just a hipster reading. And mm -hmm. I have since learned to say no at things I've been invited to. I've done a lot of, I don't mind failing. I don't mind going to things that's not well attended as groups or whatever, but that just was not my yeah genre in the slightest bit they weren't interested i thought of a note for your story okay. if, you, if you ever get in that situation again and mm -hmm. you're telling this story to crickets that young drug dealer who you sat down to teach about how to form an llc uh -huh. turned out to be a young jay-z <laughs> i should just twist it there you go into some detroit dude that's like now a mogul and it was yes. all because of me yeah well who's he, from detroit they have a radio station called eminem in detroit oh. Oh, it's yeah, called Eminem. Eminem. Isn't yeah. that rad? Yeah, that is. But the kid was questionable and he was teaching me what the drugs were because I was like, well, what do you have? And he told me all these names and I recognized zero of mm -hmm. the things he had. Yeah, the kids uh, these days. I don't know what any of the drugs are at all. I mean, what are oysters? I remember he said oysters and I was like, what is an oyster? Like, I still to this day don't know what an oyster is because it's probably like that block in Detroit calls something that back in the 80s I did. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. When I was Because names younger, change. They called uh, oxys beans. Oh, yeah, like, they did. Yeah. When I was younger, they called um, uh, meth crystal. But mm -hmm. even before that, they called it- Ice. It was ice No, they never point. called it ice for me. I can't even remember what they called it. I'm blanking on it now. But no, it's had so many different names. Yeah. And I remember at one point someone- was like, well, you did meth. And I was like, I've never done meth. Are you kidding me? And then they called it by that name. And I was like, oh, wait. Maybe <laughs> Crank, that was it. Oh, Crank. They called it Crank. Crank. I thought Crank was some kind of a mixture of drugs. I'm not sure. Which is what meth is. Cranks. Okay. Meth is a mixture of well, drugs. Well, meth is a, is a single molecule, methamphetamine, right. with a lot of different ways you can like 
formulate you know i'm not a chemist i'm no meth user either so really i'm not an expert in this i don't field. know either i know that i um barely know what the drugs are and sometimes we find drugs in the bar and i don't know what the hell they are Never. so i have a story for you go my 12 year old son to make some extra pocket cash he runs my in-laws firewood stack business on the highway there so it it's like self-serve put the ten dollars in the thing take your wood go off so I get a text at work and he's like, come home now. We have a problem. And he sends me a picture of a white baggie and with cash all around it. It's a picture of the inside of their cash box. He's opened it up and found that there's a white baggie full of powder compressed in there with all the cash. And he's not missing any wood stacks. So somebody was just using that as a drop spot. I think most likely it was locked. I think most likely what happened is somebody on their way out to vacation stopped to get firewood, forgot they had cocaine, like five grams of cocaine in their wallet, and then they put it in with the $10. You don't think somebody was leaving it there and being like, go pick it up at the cash spot? I don't think they could have. The only person with a key to it was my 12-year-old. Oh, I didn't know it was locked up because we- Unless Sawyer's into some dark shit that I'm unaware of. (laughs) Well- I know that there was some dealing going on using the ramp that goes into workers underneath it. There was people putting money in there and putting drugs. It was like a trade station. Yeah, that makes sense. I saw it in the cameras one day because we came in and the ramp was actually up. And we we're like, what the hell? So when we checked the cameras, I'm like, what are they doing? And when we went back and checked cameras, I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. There's So we put a, we put a note under there that says we're watching you on the cameras. Did it stop? Oh, yeah, totally yeah. stopped. They don't want to be somewhere where they know they're being watched. They're just looking for a place that's out of the way. Where yeah. They don't I know. actually have to meet the scuzzy people they're dealing with, probably. Well, probably because then they have to chat with them. And if yeah. they're dependent on the drug, they have to over chat with them and they don't shut up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, so we took that baggie, not knowing exactly what it was, and took it home and set up our chemistry set and tested it. And identified the chemical compounds in the baggie. And no turns way. Out it was cocaine. The reagent turned so dark, bright blue. It was like immediate. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So we took it and got rid of it. But yeah, pretty bizarre experience. It I- is. Dealing with drugs when you're not doing drugs is a bizarre world. Because now the cops aren't interested in it at all or can't do anything about any of it. And so you're kind of left in this position of being like, well, what do I do? And there's no like training course. There's no. You're not supposed to flush it. No, you're not supposed to flush it. Because that goes in the ocean. The cops won't take it. And so recently I asked just, I I do like a question a week in the bar because I talk to so many people. Um, I'll pose questions to people for the week and then it'll, it's like a fun introduction or something. And I asked everybody what they would do. And everybody was like, you know, there's dumb people that are like, I'd sell it to the drug dealers. No, I'm not interested. I, that makes you a drug dealer. I, you could give it to me. <laughs> and I was like, no. And then I wouldn't flush it. And the only, and I didn't want to put it in our garbage because people go through our garbages. And sometimes we find really big amounts of drugs. Not very often. But this one guy was like, we have a campfire pit at Workers. And he was like, you put it in the campfire pit when no one's around. And I was like, I hadn't thought of that. Because he's like, that's what the cops do with it. Yeah. Hadn't thought of that. Now I know. Yep, that's the way to do it. You just burn it. Yeah, just burn it. Just Yeah, I just, I honestly, I had the same problem. We didn't know how to get rid of it at first because I don't, I don't know. It felt weird to call the cops. Uh, sure, it's just yeah. not something I wanted to deal with. Right. And, but 
I'm a recovered drug addict, so right. I also didn't want it around you in me. And, and it's not like I wanted to take it. Um, Coke was never my thing, right. uh, but I didn't want to think about it. I was finding myself thinking about it right. way more than I than would you like. wanted to. Yeah, yeah, like Googling um, what how to tell if it's good or versus how you know just like feeling those little addict yeah. roots yeah. starting to branch out. Thinking and, too much about yes. it. Yes. Yeah. So I was just told my wife, I was like, please take this and right. dispose of it somewhere. Right. Get rid of it. I don't want it in our life at all. Well, we found a pretty big bag of MDMA at the bar, which of course my staff had to tell me what it is because I didn't know what the hell it was. That would have been a little bit more tempting. Yeah, it was a lot. It was pretty big. And I um, I was like, we were really busy when we found it. And I was like, just throw it in my purse until further notice. And so then the staff was like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm going to take it home and throw it in my residential garbage because I don't want to put it in our garbage at the bar. And they were like, no, you can't drive with that in your car. You're going to make front page news if you get in a car accident because it wasn't a little amount. It was quite a bit. Yeah, you go to prison. So I was like, I don't know what the hell to do with it. And I'm so... I was just like, well, if I got in a car accident, the cops would all know it actually wasn't mine. I mean, I'm sitting there assuming that because they know me because I have to talk to them quite a bit. They test your blood anyway. Yeah, they probably would. And um, But I didn't know, again, we didn't know what to do. And so I called the police and I asked them, can you just come get this? And they literally shamed me. They were like, that's not our problem anymore. I was like, are you kidding? I don't know what to do with this at all. So finally, they did send someone to come and take it. And I was like, I just want to go home. I just don't want to, I don't want this in my, I have enough people to take care of. I don't need to take care of a weird bag of substance. I don't know what the hell it is, but. Yeah. And I also didn't want to have it anywhere around in case whoever had it wanted it back. Yeah. I wanted to be like, I gave it to the police. End of issue. End of whatever the hell we were talking about. Yeah, that could be a conflict that you don't want any part of. No. And I mean, I don't have any like mean dudes that come in the bar. Everybody's really nice. Um, Even you know, the drug dealers and the drug addicts, they're nine times out of 10, they're pretty good. Um, they just fall out of somebody's pocket or something? I assume so. It was really busy. We don't know. But it just showed up. You and... almost feel bad for them in that situation. It's just like, No, I, I don't. <laughs> I do a little. It's like somebody, most likely they lost a lot of money on that or I yeah. don't know. They're not all horrible people. No, they're not all horrible people, but managing careless drug sure. addicts who drink liquor is a really difficult issue and i don't oh, I i'd rather not deal with it because they come in and they order one drink and they drink a half a drink and they're they're trashed and now that becomes your responsibility because you over it looks like you overserved but you didn't yeah it could be a grandma gets a new prescription and next thing you know she drinks one cocktail and down she goes you know what i mean yeah and i can't control that because she could drive a car she could walk out on the highway she could do all kinds of things and so I'm not a big fan of it right now, and especially this summer. This is the hardest summer we've ever had, for sure. It's yeah. everywhere, and it's the drug addicts are very um, entitled this summer. They feel very empowered with the new laws. So I don't, I don't know a whole lot about the new laws. How does that how does that change things? It becomes a violation instead of an arrestable offense. Possession. So yeah. So they're getting, you know, a ticket which they won't care about most most of the time, and. Versus before where they could actually be arrested. So they're like full on shooting up in front of people. Wow. And that's new. I mean, it's just so crazy. It's so hard to wrap your head around it. But I'm also, you know, I was born in 69 and smoking weed in front of people still feels like I still makes me nervous in a I weird way. It. Yeah, it makes me nervous, too. So it's hard to wrap your head around a lot of like the new it drug is. laws. Yeah. So uh, so they decriminalize possession you can use publicly and not get in trouble? Well, I don't really know that part. They just part. don't have money to burn. 
for probably not. Public. I mean, you're not supposed to smoke weed publicly either, but people mm-hmm. do it. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, well, what are you going to who's going to stop you from smoking weed publicly? You're supposed to be at your residence or at a residence when you do it. But people are like walking around all the time. And yeah. We all know that. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, that's true. I have no idea. What's your opinion on on that law? Like my personal opinion has always been I think they should decriminalize as much as possible and invest in treatment and all that. But it does seem like a bit of a problem if people are just taking advantage of the law and using entitlement to just say, all right, well, then I'll just like be a junkie legally now. That seems like counterproductive. Yeah, I don't know my opinion on the law. I only know my opinion is that they've left us, meaning people who have to deal with it, absolutely with no resources whatsoever, nobody to call, nobody to talk to about it, nobody to, what should I do? There's no resources for us at all. It's just like, good luck, Chuck. Yeah. And that I do have an opinion on because that is actually frightening. It's real. It can be really scary. We've got this one kid in the neighborhood um, near workers who is extremely aggressive. He's a methy. He's aggressive. He's thrown things at me. He's spit at me. I don't think he's very far from coming after me. I'm pretty sure. I know he breaks into buildings because people have told me that. The police are aware of him and there's nothing that we can really do. And when he's high, he's aggressive. And so now I have no, I have nowhere to go if he walks into my business and goes after one of my employees. I have nobody to call. I can't even call the police, really. I yeah. mean, we can just to get him out of the business, but he could stand in front of the business and do all kinds of things. So that's a bit of a struggle. And I, I do think that that's wrong. If you're going to change the law, then you should have some sort of somebody, somebody yeah. that's in charge of these people who have become difficult. I think that that idea gets left behind a lot yeah. because we're so liberal, yeah. politically liberal these days, and everyone wants to which is awesome that we're trying to include and have empathy for people and all that's wonderful. But yeah, I think a lot of the time people don't really consider what can happen when people who are violent or dangerous Mm -hmm. are going to take advantage of the kindness of lax laws. Sure. And I mean, it comes down to homeless too. I mean, we get a lot of homeless people, especially in the winter, come in the bar because we have a fireplace in the bar and they'll order a cup of coffee and they'll sit down and they just start to fall asleep. And so we've had to make rules where if you're not actually drinking the coffee, you can't sit there. You cannot bring any of your bags in. I mean, you start to make like rules because it can cause problems with other guests that are in the bar. And you just end up in these like horrible positions where you like look like a piece of crap, but I can't house a bunch of people that are cold all the time. Um, I try to keep coffee a dollar on purpose. I keep it as cheap as I can. I don't need to make a profit on that. But I also, you know, some of them are schizophrenic. And if you tell them to leave, they'll turn in two seconds on you. And now you're like, again, another dangerous situation. And so when I hear people talking about homeless, sometimes I'm like, do you talk to homeless? Do you personally talk to them? Because I do a lot. And it's not always fun. And it's not because they lost their job or their housing got more expensive. It's because they have mental health issues that are really big or just aggression that's they can't function. Personality disorders. Personality disorders. And I am not there to fix it, solve it, or have compassion for it in my business that somebody could get hurt. And they do. They do cause problems or damage to my building or something. And so it's a, I don't know how to fix it. Clearly nobody does. Look at the whole country. Yeah. Nobody knows how to fix this at all. It's getting worse every day. Nobody has a good idea. 
No, no. Where, where did you move? You moved from Portland before you were here, right? I did in 2014, but I grew up in, I was born in San Francisco and I grew up in Sacramento. Oh, so you know all about homelessness. Oh, San Francisco is ruined. My, yeah. my city is done for. There's no. That was the start of it all. There was no turning back. It is literally the biggest shithole. I, last time I went, was on the ferry going to San Francisco and I was just crying because even before I got on the ferry, I couldn't believe what I'd seen. I went to show my son, my youngest son hadn't seen San Francisco and I was like this you know there were always homeless when i was growing up that was always a part of the lifestyle but it just i don't know what i don't know what the hell san francisco is doing but i think it's the most ridiculous thing i've ever seen and Weren't i they feel accepting like accepting buses full of homeless people for 20 years from other cities i don't know don't they say that about astoria though i mean people in astoria know. say that all the time that like the drug rehab centers give people a one-way ticket to astoria i hear that all the time i'm not sure i believe it but i hear it <clears throat> i don't know yeah but yeah it's a problem it's totally a problem with no solutions. And I know a lot of people that are trying to figure it out. But another weird thing I've happened, I've had happen is I've gone, like I, I drive down to see my parents a lot in California and I'll stay in a hotel. And it's, you know, like $139 a night hotel. And you get there and the whole hotel is filled with homeless. It's just filled. And I won't let my kids out of the room because I'm like, I, this is like scary. How this hotel are they is paying scary. for that? The city's giving the homeless vouchers to live in hotels. Oh. So then I just go just randomly and I'm like, I don't, what the hell? There's like people hanging laundry up and it's a national chain filled with these, filled with homeless people. And you can't, ugh, it's the craziest when that happens to you. It's happened to me a, a few times for sure. That puts you in a really bad position. Yeah. Because if you complain, you look like a Karen. Like, yeah, Like I know, you're entitled sure. and yeah. all, like, oh man. That's a really tight spot. Yeah. How do you even begin to address something like that? I don't know. But I did have this funny guy uh, once who's a homeless guy in a story. I, he was laying down on the sidewalk in front of the bar. And I was like, get out. Get up. Get out of here. You can't lay here. Whatever. And he got up and he goes, I'm going to tell everybody Workers Tavern hates homeless. And I was like, all right. Tell them. Tell them. Good luck. Go have somewhere fun. else. Bye-bye. I was like, I don't even care. I'm not yeah. here to like make your day. It's not year. a personal issue like it's mm -hmm. a business thing they yeah. hurt your business for sure 100 percent. you don't want to be that if place. i walk into a restaurant or a coffee shop or a bar and i see big piles of dirty bags yeah i'm leaving it's a turnoff for yeah. sure especially if you have children like in a coffee exactly. shop or something that's not a comfortable position to be in for anybody so i don't know i i know that you know, I've heard all kinds of discussions of, of what's starting it. I mean, are we at some sort of drug peak with the opiates and maybe we'll get past that peak? Who knows? I have no idea. You don't know. No, I don't know, know either. It's really hard to think to predict, but yeah. it seems to be getting worse all the time. I know. But is that aging? I sometimes think that's aging when you think, when I was a kid, I could just go to the corner store and buy candy for 10 cents. You that's know what true. I, I don't <laughs> know why I got true. an accent when I'm older, but. Oh, uh, that happens as you age. <laughs> I know. It's so incredibly true yeah. that we think that way where everything was better. I mean, I've heard people like California is in this massive drought. Now Oregon is. And I hear people, you know, saying, oh, this is so horrible. And I was like, I remember the drought when I was like six. I remember it was it was a huge deal. My dad was mad. He couldn't wash his car. All our grass died. And I would play. I was six so I could like play on the grass. But it was like really scratchy. And I remember there were fires all over. And it's like people forget. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, this has happened before. You're yeah. just not remembering to that level. They also used to burn all the rice fields around Sacramento. That used to be the way they did it before they flooded again. And so I remember there was smoke forever. Well, they stopped doing that. All that material just built up for three yeah. decades. 
and yeah. the woods too. That's why the fires are so bad. Yeah. There yeah, used to be a lot more forest fires, small ones. Small ones. And then we got really good at preventing those and all that stuff year after year just built up. Yeah. And then poof, just goes off. Well, and we now put houses in the middle of them. Exactly. So then we talk about the loss of 500 houses were burned down. I was like, well, you put them in the middle of a forest. Yeah. It seems like somewhere, you know, there's floodplains and these are the side effects that are going to happen in certain instances. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. At some point, insurance companies are going to push back and be like, nope. Not doing they probably it. already are. They probably already are. That's something yeah. they're really good at is denying claims. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I think about it. I I flipped a few houses that were in a flood zone, and uh, they were. I lost. I remember I lost a little money because I had to sell them for cheaper because the person had to buy flood insurance, but and the flood insurance was pretty high. Like Jeffers Garden in Astoria is very oh, yeah. similar to that. You have to pay high insurance to live there. But there are ways to mitigate around that. You know, any new properties can solve those problems and the way they're built and stuff. So maybe over time it kind of like works itself out or whatever. But the fire stuff is ridiculous right now. I mean, yeah. it's pretty hard to – I don't know. It just seems like everything is so – I've never seen anything so dry as around here. After that big heat wave we had this summer, it was horrible. Yeah, that was crazy. I don't really yeah. know what to make of that. And it it – Seems a lot like it's climate change. Yeah, it's hard not to when it was like that because that was deadly. I mean, they like don't even said, know how many know. people died. My baseline is based off of the last 30 years. Yeah, so I haven't exactly. been around that long. <laughs> right, I know. No, we, you know, um, I've prided myself on keeping the bar open since we reopened after the pandemic. We've stayed open every day. Wow. When other places are closing on Monday and Tuesday, I've had my staff for quite a long time and they're super loyal and when we had that heat wave and we stayed open and the reason why is we have this outdoor area and I kept sprinklers on the whole time and I felt a huge obligation to have a place that was slightly cooler than other places. But in the process, like the next day when I wrote to my whole staff, I actually apologized to them. I was like, I would love to, to think I'm thanking you for working last night, but that was stupid. I shouldn't have done it. I, I, I apologize that I was so concerned about the people coming in that I didn't realize how hard it was going to be for you guys physically because we had an air conditioner in our kitchen and so we were able to keep things kind of cool. But moving was hard because when it's that hot, just moving around is really hard. And we stayed open until 2 a.m. We kept that place open and there were people just sitting in the backyard on their phones. I've never seen our bar so quiet. Really? People didn't have enough energy to talk. They sat there and drank cold drinks in the sprinklers, but they didn't talk. Wow. That was insane. Yeah, it wasn't a pleasant heat wave. No. Not no. like, no, it, it wasn't that great. No, I mean, I, we've had other heat waves, but nothing like that. I can't imagine. I had to drive through it in Portland. My kid had state championships in the swim during that heat. And the pool, they could just only open the doors. They, there oh, was wow. no air conditioning and they were swimming in that heat, which wow. you would like to think was cool, but the water was warm. Yeah. It was awful. State championships for the whole state of Oregon were during that heat wave. Damn. How'd he do? Um, he His goggles fell off in the event he cared about the most, unfortunately, but he's a junior. So more than likely, he'll go back to state this year and he can do much better. But it was he was just happy to go to the game. And we were so happy just to have a swim season at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Howard Rube at Astoria High School worked really, really hard to make sure all the kids got a season somehow, some way. And I asked him at one point, Howard was at one of the meets, and I said, so who does this mean more to, the kids or the parents of the kids? And he goes, the parents. Because <laughs> yeah, we were so happy to have that. our kids do something, anything. COVID messed up sports so bad. Ugh, messed I mean, up, yeah. professional sports, 
meh, who cares? Yeah. Then not my thing. But kids sports yeah. were like what my life revolved around yeah, for too. the years leading up to COVID. Yeah. So it was a big shift to yeah. have it just and even we kind of limped our way through. Like my son was still in baseball for sure. mixed seasons throughout that time mm-hmm. and my daughter was in dance. But not the usual like three seasons, no. like distinct seasons and I don't know. That stuff is so like grounding for a kid through childhood to have to know that like fall is soccer or football sure, right. winters basketball you know right uh, it was a shame i found it interesting that uh so we've been in swim we do club swim and we do high school swim it was interesting that the whole season which was only five weeks long for swim instead of three months um the parents that put it together and were always there were the same parents that had their kids in swim at eight years old it was always the same parents like they've just this is part of their life this is what they do and we were there up until the very end. And I I really loved that part of it. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have three boys, right? I do, yes. How old are they all? 20, 17, and 14. Okay, 20, 17, and 14. So decent amount of time in between, enough to mm-hmm. catch your breath, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, they are definitely spread apart. Twenty, My 20-year-old is a man now and out in the world. He's actually in Wales right now working um, on an antique train in the Snowdonia National Park. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Is he's, he an antique train expert? Well, he worked on the Steam Locomotive Restoration Society's big train they have in Astoria. He worked on it for four years while he was in high school. But he's an electrical engineering major at OIT. And he randomly quit his job and said he was going to go to Wales and work at this place uh, because school doesn't start until the end of September. And I was like, hell yes, you should do that. So he went and he's learning a lathe and learning about coal and just it's so incredible. He's already booked it for next summer. He can't wait to go back. Yeah, I'm just happy he's doing anything, quite frankly. And he sent me a video, which I absolutely loved. And he's sitting in a pub and he's talking to an Irish guy his age, an English guy his age, and a Welsh woman his age. And he's drinking a cider, playing cards. And I was like, oh, my God, that looks normal. That that's looks like a norm. Yeah, that's what life is supposed to be like right now. So that was tickled me to death. I love that. My 17-year-old, um, he's a biology. He's really into fisheries. He wants to go into fisheries biology. He went to Mexico and he went to Cozumel in June to do a biology research project with the teachers from Astoria High School. Cool. So that's his little passion. He's starting the college world. And my fresh, and then I have a freshman. He's starting school this freshman, as a freshman. And he works at the film museum in Astoria. He's a docent, a guide. Oh, wow. Cool. He's a future politician or he's probably a future politician. I don't know what he is, but he gets people and he can speak in front of crowds and loves. He's worked at the Flavel House for two years. He's really, really involved. All my kids are really involved in the community one way or another, which... It seems like they also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you seem to have unique, specialized skills that you can identify in each one of these kids. Is that the result of how you raised them, or is that just a coincidence? I remember reading in um, an interview or an article about some writing you did for a book. Let's see. The book was... Yeah, no, not happening. Yeah. How I found happiness swearing off self-improvement and saying, fuck it. Oh, then saying fuck it all. Yeah. And how you can too by Karen Carbo. Yeah. 
And it mentioned how you had done some non-traditional parenting techniques like homeschool and that you had really liked the results. And it sounds like your kids are doing great. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I um, I homeschooled my kids. I give all different reasons why, depending on who the audience is. My two oldest are hearing impaired. So sometimes if it looks like someone might get offended by homeschooling, because that does happen, I tell them it's because my kids were hearing impaired and it's an easy like, oh, okay. But I'll be honest with you, 100% honest. The reason why I homeschooled my kids is, one, I sh- I skipped grades. I went to special schools for reading comprehension because I can comprehend information really fast. So I went to a special school, skipped grades, ended up graduating super young, and it was difficult. The school system didn't work for me. I should have been at college level in high school. It just – the system wasn't great for me. So when I was thinking about preschool, one, I had quit my job to stay home with my kids. So the idea of sending them to preschool seemed really odd to me. I was like, I already am here. So why am I going to pay somebody to do something else? So the first thing I said was I'm not doing preschool. And a lot of my friends were like, what? Because they were all rushing around trying to get them signed up for preschool. And then when it came to kindergarten, I kept watching my oldest son. And he was so busy doing really cool stuff. He was building things. He was cutting things up. He was making things. And I kept thinking, I'm going to put him in a system that gives him 20 minutes blocks to do that. And then he's forced to go do something else. I didn't like the idea. I don't know why. I'm really rebellious and that might have something to do with it. But I thought, I wonder if I can do better than a school. And that doesn't mean schools are bad. But I I, I absolutely 100% have used schools and have used the resources they have. But I also thought, what if I can help him with whatever he's got going on, really figure out what that is while he learns reading, writing, and arithmetic? Um, and so I built homeschool communities and homeschool parks and homeschool camping trips with other homeschool parents. And they weren't of the religious sort. I'm not the religious homeschool type at all. Um, but you think that's where, I mean, the homeschool weirdos come from? No, I mean, they are socialized differently, but I wouldn't say they're odd. I I think it's all context. I mean, a lot of socializing that people don't talk about isn't good in schools. Yeah. When you take a whole group of kids that are the same exact age and you put them in a group, they will separate themselves into hierarchy all by themselves. And they're mean. And they can be really, really mean. Not always, but they can be really, really mean. And so when people are like, but what about socialization? I was like, did it do you a lot of good? Was high school super healthy for you? And now for some reason, some people it really was. Mm -hmm. But not everybody loved. Girls in middle school are well known for being just like the most vicious bitches on the block. I mean, And the most miserable. And the most miserable. And I just thought, what if we can do this different? And my oldest son is not as social as my middle son. And he is always busy doing stuff. So he naturally gravitated towards any sort of tinkering of things. He, that's just how he thinks. And so he could do it as much as he wanted. And he could find friends. His best friend throughout his whole homeschool life was two years older than him. And I'm not sure he would have thrived in his age group if he was segregated into you. Now you work on this and now you work on that. Um, my middle son was far more social and he had to be in groups of people all the time. And so I would seek out those groups of people. And you could tell because you could just watch how he thrived. My other son would play for a while and then go read a book by himself. So what I wanted them to do is I felt like there was some nature in there. They knew kind of what they needed or wanted. And so I would try to just fill that. So if 
my middle son was really into animals, then that's what we would do. We would follow through and I would just see how he would light up. He would get so excited if the book or the movie or the toy was related to that. And after a while, you start growing into adulthood. Those conversations start changing into this is what you your passions are and your interests, your natural interests are in these areas. And so as a homeschool parent and teacher, you start to gravitate in those ways. But when I moved from Portland to Astoria, there was no homeschool community. And I felt like I felt like I wanted and I might have done I probably would have done this in Portland, too. I, I sent them to high school to learn high school, <laughs> high For school, cultural significance. One hundred percent. High school is about to me socializing, dating, getting a job, learning how to follow directions, even when you don't like it. Yeah. And when I was explaining to my youngest who loves to argue, he's very good at debating. I said, I'm sending you to high school. And I had a bowl next to me. And I said, do you see this bowl? High school is moving this bowl from here to here. It's not asking why, how. It's moving the bowl from here to here. Because when you're part of a community or a society, there are times you have to just move the damn bowl. I want you to think about why you're moving the bowl. But you're going to go to high school and move the damn bowl. And when you go to college, you're going to move the damn bowl. And when you're all done with that, you can do whatever the hell you want with that bowl. You can do that all in your own world as much as you want. But if you follow these directions and you learn the directions, then you can figure out which ones are important to break. But don't go breaking the rules unless you actually understand it. There's a great- Oh, that's so, so brilliant. It's that's true. great advice. There's a great quote by Will Smith that I love and he his kids are homeschooled. And he said, I, I don't care if my kids know what the Boston Tea Party is. I care if my kids know what the Boston Tea Party stood for. And I always think that's my entire basis for homeschooling is- Understand why you have to move that bowl. Learn to move it for a short period of time. Then go break the damn bowl. I don't care. I break the bowl all the time. But I'm also tell people I'm a straight A student. I follow all the rules because if I follow all the rules, I can have the biggest opinion I want. And yeah. nobody's going to come after me because I haven't broken any rules. If you master a system, then yes. you can control it and you and, can work outside of it. And high school is a system. And I, I want all of them to go to high school and to learn to date and to learn those social skills and what they do with it from there is up to them. And so, and I think high school is a wonderful community in a small town. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really, the parents really make that. And I, I'm so impressed with what a small town can do rallying around a high school. And I didn't feel that way in elementary and middle school. I'm sure it was there, but I just thought the kids were far more vicious. They really mm. are pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. My wife's a teacher. She taught middle school for several years and now mm. she's in kindergarten. Those kids are a lot nicer. Sure. Yeah. The middle schoolers, they can be pretty vicious and they're also so sensitive. So like yeah. the vicious ones hurt the sensitive ones. Yeah. Endlessly. Endlessly. And I, so I was, I was planning on playing devil's advocate and poking holes in all the homeschooling logic because that's what everybody does. Yeah. And I'm, I figured you'd have lots of ready to go answers, <laughs> but you pretty much addressed everything right away. It sounds like your kids are socialized and yeah. well-rounded and you identified the holes that would be in a homeschool education sure. and you filled them. Yeah. And uh, that sounds honestly like a much more individualized and productive system for any parent that can handle a, a responsibility like that. Props to you. Well, I know that during the pandemic, homeschooling was a nightmare, and I understand that, but that's because everybody was trying to follow a curriculum. Homeschool parents don't always do that. I would say the majority of them don't. I mean, I didn't follow a curriculum. I was like super parent teacher in the fall, and then by spring, I was like, let's just go to the park all day and play in a pond. 
That's um, what a lot of the real teachers are doing too. I know. I remember very clearly I was watching my friend's son after school one day a week and he came home and he had like a pond flyer he had to color that showed like the life cycle of a frog. And all day my kids had been catching polywogs in a pond. And I was like, I, it was hard not to chuckle because yeah. it was kind of a funny moment that day. But I, um, I feel so bad for parents that had to go through what they did in the last year because that's not homeschooling. That isn't what we did. Literally, I would go out for lunch for like Indian buffet and tell the kids about when I was in India. And we were like, done, <laughs> you know? And then I, I would read a lot of books. My kids always went to the library. That was a huge part of our lives. Um, and my kids all read voraciously now to this day. But I didn't follow curriculum like people had to do this last year. And that, that none of that's normal. None of that was good. And that's not what any of us have ever done. Yeah. And, and there's I, no flow if you're, if you're learning it yourself and no. then trying to directly turn around and teach it. Oh, how the hell do you homeschool a first grader? I mean, that yeah. seemed like a nightmare for everybody involved. And kudos to everybody who actually got through that because that's not what I did. For me, it was fun. I it mean, quite like frankly, it. it was a lot of fun. But I'm also a super curious person. Mm -hmm. So if my kid had an interest in something, I'd be like, let's go figure out how to do that. That sounds like a fun adventure. And then we'd go off and do it. Because I was a stay-at-home mom at the time, too. Like, I needed stimulation. And I didn't want to stay home and sit at a table. And, I mean, your kids are crying because they can't figure out math. That seems stupid. I was like, they're not going to learn like this. No. They're going to have bad memories of trying of to learn. Of trying to learn. My friend said to me when I was struggling trying to teach my kids to read at one point, she was like, do you really think you're going to have an 18-year-old that can't read? No, that's true. She goes, your kid is going to know how to read. Okay, fine. I'll back off a little bit, which was great. So. Yeah. Yeah, those milestones don't always have to happen at the same time for everybody. They just don't. And when that's it... how this education system is kind of dependent on that. Sure. Well, we have to have these rules and these guidelines, and I understand it. And I've never met one single teacher that's like, yeah, that's a great system. <laughs> I mean, every teacher is like, we're all doing our best. That's all you can do. And that's why I don't want to offend people when I say homeschooling was so good for us, because I don't think schools are bad. I think schools are fantastic, and I they serve a very important purpose, and I have no kudos against them. I just thought I could do something different, and I was willing to experiment with my own kids. And I'm sure my kids, people would say they're socially awkward, I'm 100% sure they would say that, but I Have know you met a, any kid. Under I 25? know a ton of kids that are really socially awkward that went to school. So yeah. I'm always like, kids are weird these days. Kids are weird, <laughs> and and quite frankly, they're a, they're awesome. Yeah, they, they are. are awesome. I can't believe the stuff they care about. I didn't care about any of that shit when I was that age. I didn't even know about most of the shit they care about. No, I was like snorting coke at their age. And my yeah. my kids all like investing in hedge funds. I mm -hmm. don't understand what the hell's happening with the young people. The world's people. changing fast. <laughs> it's really cool to watch. Yeah. I didn't start getting into any kind of financial education until my very late 20s. Yeah. And yeah, now you can just get on the internet and watch YouTube videos. You can be a millionaire by the time you're 21. Yeah, if that's your thing, you can yeah. totally do it. My kid is definitely playing in stocks and he definitely teaches me. I mean... God, he's taught me so much about the world, just having great conversations with him that are so much more interesting than I was at 20. Um, so, no, it's it's really cool. And I felt like during the pandemic, a big part of my, like, being pissed off about the pandemic was that everyone was talking about older people. And I was like, we're literally stealing from our children. This yeah. is our this is stealing our children's future. And I have two extremely healthy parents that are in their 80s. And I have three children. And I said straight to my parents, I said, I'm worried about my kids future, not yours. I said, Do you need more cruises? Do you need to go golfing more? Because they've never had that. And they, my parents were like, No, we don't. But they do. 
And I was like, that's right. And now we're like. This is not a conversation people were having. Mm -mm. I mean, they were, but they were being blocked from YouTube and and social media for it. Man, so many people turned on me when I was like this. I was like, it's because I have teenagers. I'm thinking about their future. Our life has gotten so cushy as humans that all of a sudden when this actual existential for some threat comes onto the scene, all of a sudden we kind of forget our priorities. Correct. I'm on your side on this one. I think that the kids have lost out more than anybody. Yeah, which is why my son being in that pub with all these people drinking a cider, playing cards was the most beautiful thing to me because I was like, you were robbed of this for the last year and a half. You were you lost your sophomore year of college. And I, this is all I want for you is normalcy. I, I mean, I, I can't believe that I actually was, you know, at one point I was like, I don't give a shit about college. I just want you to get stimulated. I don't want you getting depressed. You know, my middle son started getting depressed doing online school. And I was like, I don't even know how to help you. Yeah. Let's just get exercising and get sunlight. It's all I can think of. Um I just want to put everything back together for them, which makes me feel better. And I'm literally the driving force of the economy. I'm 51 years old. I own a ton of rentals. I own a bar. I pay a ton in taxes. I am the highest of the workforce right now, the highest tax paying base. And I want it for them, my kids. Yeah. And I that's what hurts me is to know that they're losing their time all those memories proms those two years of those kids that lost out on all that shit jesus free drinks in my bar i mean seriously that's horrid i had a couple of those kids on my show did you and it yeah they're pretty cool about it right because they don't know what they've lost it's true exactly Mm -hmm. but they must a little bit because they saw they grew up everyone grows up thinking about their prom and graduation and that stuff and then to do it over zoom yeah they got robbed they did. And and hopefully and it'll be fun in the next five years to kind of like unpack things and figure out what those stories are and what they came out of it instead. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. my middle son was telling me that he has friends who had like only online boyfriends and girlfriends. And I was like, you mean like a person that you tune in with? Like they had friends. They had somebody that they checked in on. And then he told me another thing about how when school started online, they would go to each other's houses and sit next to each other and do their online classes. They oh. had to physically just be next to each other while they were doing it. And I, I was bet like, that helped. Well, I think it helped their heads to realize how important those things were in a in a way, you know? Yeah. I bet a lot of people didn't like that, though. Like, oh, no, murderers. COVID. Yeah, murderers. I know. Yeah. I know. That, that got so nasty. It's still going. But. Oh, I yeah. I got all that nastiness because I was like, we cannot do this to our economy. I kept saying that over and over again. I was like, people can't not work. They'll literally kill themselves. Yeah. They, I mean, bartenders, so I employ all bartenders, they're all extroverts, every one of them. And it was like their battery packs were dying. So I'd have these campfires in the backyard of the bar just for employees. And... I was like, because we can't, we had to see each other. There was no way an extrovert could survive this world. And I had no idea how important it was until this summer when nobody had employees. But I did. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Keeping There's every, to be found. Keeping no everybody together. I know. Keeping yeah. everybody together was super important during the pandemic. It really paid, it's paid for itself this summer. Good. I know. Yeah. Rough. I like your philosophies. I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I didn't hear a lot of that. And that viewpoint is very much blocked from the media. You don't hear it at all. I don't think of it as political. I know everybody wants to make it political and they want to make me, you know, I got canceled once during the pandemic from some tenants. I kicked out of a property who went online and started this big hoopla and suddenly workers is some sort of one side or the other bar. 
And I remember the whole time just being like, I, I write very left. My writing is in Progressive Magazine, and and I think that way. But there, I I'm I have very strong opinions about other sides because I can see both sides, and I think both sides have very relevant things to say and I'm not going to put a label on that. I want my kids to hear both sides. I want them to think that way. It would kill me not to cuz I'm not going to be dismissive about anybody. Yeah. Even it, even when they're blowhards. Yeah, you just by saying you're a democrat or a republican, you're accepting this long list right. of things that you must agree with or disagree mm -hmm. with. It's gotten to where you can't I mean you can't claim that you're to either side no. because then it just all this baggage that comes with it. And I, I just can't really do that. Well, and I think people are disregarding what true rebellion is. The country is based on re rebels who left England, right, to come here. I mean, and then they're going to put what what happens to anybody when they're pushed up against the wall? They they're they're going to push back. And I don't it it's almost doesn't even matter what my opinions are. If somebody tries to force me into a position I'll push back even though I might agree with them because I just don't appreciate it. And so I try to always think every person's kind of like that. I definitely am. And so that's where it happens. And the people that I agree with their stances, I don't agree with their performance on that stance because they're not taking true human's nature into their minds and understanding that you're pushing them into being more of what you don't like by merely telling them or calling them stupid. Yeah. The calling them stupid annoys the shit out of me because they're not stupid. They're just evolved differently than you. That's yeah. all. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, people who go off about churches getting tax write-offs, right? I, God, I have a lot of friends who really hate that world. Who feeds the most amount of homeless in the United States? Churches do. Actual God-fearing churches are the ones who feed the most homeless. Take the tax break away. Are you going to feed the homeless? Are you going to do it? Probably not. That's what they, I mean, that's the libertarian viewpoint. Mm -hmm. It's like if you take away all of the socialized right. assistance and, uh, you know, the tax breaks and that stuff, individual citizens will be led to do it because we're all intrinsically such good people. Right. But I question that. I question that a lot. I mean, I really do. I don't have a problem with um, a lot of the ideas of church. I have a problems with some ideas. Of course I do, because I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> I don't like that idea. I, I think I live with a pretty high moral aptitude. Most people who would meet me would know that I that I do. Seems like something you think about. Without church, I don't really think or need that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think there's some systems in place that people are just not educated enough to know that most of the homeless in the United States are fed by church God-fearing places, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And again, you could take it all away, like they with the drug thing, and then now we're all left with no answers, like legalized drugs, and now I'm screwed. So yeah. I, I never am a big fan of those. Like ah, all churches are horrible. No, some really horrible things have happened at churches. It's all just gray area. It's all gray. There's. Can you imagine how important people who really believe like turn to churches during this time? Just because they're counselors in a lot yeah. of ways, you know? I think churches are a crucial part of our society. Yes, 100%. And there are some people who are more tuned in and their disposition makes it more able to mm -hmm. to click in and actually absorb sure. some of that value. But a lot of people are just so closed off to it that there's no chance they're going to be able to see the value there. For the value for someone else. That's what yeah, I always say. I, I, mean, I yeah. appreciate like. I love it when somebody comes in and tells me that they thrived at something at the bar, like somebody I don't know. They come in and they tell me, and I'm so excited for them, for their world. Like my son, you know, he's working on antique trains. I, I, 
I would never want to go do that. I want to go visit him and see what it's all about. I find that interesting. But I was like in tears and excitement for him. So that's the same thing I feel about like churches or whatever people believe in. If if that works for you and you need to go to that Sunday thing every week and you need someone to remind you of what the what is important to you, hell, what the hell's different than that than a guidebook or a TV show or whatever the hell it is. I mean, yeah, there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. No, I learned so much from talking to people yeah. and hearing their ideas. It just triggers something. Sometimes when I'm writing a story, by the time I actually write it, I can see five conversations I had about it before I wrote it. Uh-huh. And I was working through it. I didn't even know I was working through it, but I keep talking to some people about it. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, I needed to. I'd like to get into your that. writing process a yeah. little bit. Hold on. I'm going to double check the audio real quick, okay. make sure we're good. Um, but yeah, hold on just a sec. <clears throat> see what happens if I pop that off. Seems like it's still recording. Yep. Okay. Last time I tried to do this, it I took the headphones off and it got feedback and then the whole rest of the recording was ruined. Oh, bummer. So I'm, I'm just trying to figure this out as we go. You're but doing great. Anyway, uh, your book. Mm-hmm. So you have written... Two books already, is that right? And I've written, written one, and I'm in an anthology. Oh, you've written written yeah. one, and you're in, and I have one. about fifty published articles as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, have you always been a writer? No, absolutely, one hundred percent, no. Well, there's a writer named Brian Benson who would probably argue with me because he told a story at his book uh, reading where he he announced to all of his friends he got a book deal, and he was like, "I can't believe I'm going to be a writer," and they were like, "What are you talking about? Have you ever read your emails?" Hmm. And I was like, "Oh, that was me." Yeah, I have always been that person. Even before emails, I was writing letters to people when I traveled around the world. Um, so I guess I have been communicating through the written yeah. word has always excited you. Yeah, it's always words are easy for me. Mm-hmm. It's not hard for me. I'm a natural storyteller. I absorb ideas and thoughts. And um, by the time I actually started writing stories, I had been telling those stories for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I remember my editor said, you're really good at endings. And I was like, because I'm usually saying it in front of an audience. Yeah. That's why. Endings are hard. <clears throat> Beginnings yep. and endings are the hardest part for me, especially yeah. when you're actually writing it down. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's been always tricky. It, it helps to start at the ending. Oh. And work backwards. In fact, tell the story as an ending, kind of like a movie when you see the ending first and then they tell the story. Uh-huh. It helps you learn how to write endings. I was just thinking about that the other day mm-hmm. along similar lines. Um, think about writing jokes. Mm-hmm. So I was like, how how do you go about doing something like right. that? Because when you see a stand-up comedian perform a joke, it just seems like they just came up with that. Right. But it's meticulously planned and written and right. timed out and everything. So it's like, how do they do that? And I was driving and I'm like, well, I guess if I – when I laugh really hard at something, mm-hmm. whatever it is, like you could trace that back far enough, you're going to be able to find something yeah. to make a joke out of. Yeah. So, uh, like, you look at whatever it was that made you laugh. That's your punchline. One hundred percent. So now you need to find your premise, right? And you need to somehow get your audience into your headspace, so right. that you are sharing this consciousness experience together, right? And then you just walk them right up to that punchline, and then it's usually some kind of a surprise. Yeah. And then boom, you, you get didn't the laugh. realize you were being led. Exactly. That's the best story is you did not realize you, that you were being led. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love a good misdirection joke where oh, yeah. where it seems like it's predictable and sure. then they just slam something in there that you weren't expecting. I love right. that. So yeah, I yeah. try to find those two. But um, r- the whole writing process, jokes are sh- are just short little tidbits of it. Sure. But it's all the same. Like you're just trying to pull some other consciousness into yours. That's and, all you're like, trying to do. walk yeah. them through. Yeah. Writing's yeah, it's very – it's – 
it's I think it's a backwards process. You have where you want to go. And for me, that's how it is, because I want the punchline. I want the thought process. I want the oh trigger the, um, you know, because I'm all gangster with mom boobs. Like, that's what I want. I knew that part. I knew I had to work up to Detroit in that story where I'm talking to the drug dealer. But I first had to lay out you know, the big plate of like, and then there was this girl and she was vomiting and then there's this guy shooting up and then what the hell am I doing here? And I don't know how to, it was when I didn't know what Uber was and I wanted to go home, but I didn't know how to call an Uber. I didn't know what Uber was, you know, like there's all these other things that I thought of after I knew the point was that I was literally 45 years old teaching a kid how to open up an LLC in Detroit. Yeah. I just had to get there. And each one of those details adds to that picture. Yeah. And so that once you finally hit it, you're yeah. just like... We're back to a five-paragraph essay, which we all learned how to do. Exactly. Yeah, we're all, I have used that my whole life. Always. Like, it's the most important thing we learn. Crucial. <laughs> it is very crucial. Yeah. So, I use it for writing grants. I use it for, you know, writing emails, everything. Well, we can process it too because we were taught that. So we are expecting it. I hope they're still teaching that. Oh, yeah, they are for sure. I'm sure they are. I know, I know, I know. Um, So what is your book about? Um, Well, what my book is about me. There are stories about me. But is it a memoir? Yeah, it's a memoir. It start the very first story is about roller skating when I'm 13 years old to Thriller. And I'm finally couple skating with Jonathan Martin. And it's about how he was the guy at the rink. He always looked right. He always acted right. And then I finally get to couple skate with him. And I realize that everybody that's couple skating is kind of starting to act out like the zombies and Thriller. And he's too cool for it. And I slowly realize that Jonathan Martin isn't everything I thought he was because I'm actually more of the person that would act out the thriller. And he was afraid. And he was afraid. And it ends with the drug dealer story where now I'm teaching this guy. And so the stories are just kind of about how I kind of run to my own beat. I don't really care what people think of me a huge amount. I probably am missing out a little bit on those things that keep people confined to their social world because they those care. Those prison bars? Those prison bars. They care a lot about them. I, for some reason, haven't. Even when I was little, I didn't really care. I actively avoid those things. Well, I actively avoid all cliques because you have to conform to belong to them. And I'm not very good at conforming to anything. Hence why I homeschool. Hence why I home birthed. Hence why I own a bar. I just don't. Anti-conformists care. are the only people I actually trust. Yeah. Oh, me too. Because they're the only ones thinking for themselves. They're only thinking for themselves. 100% true. Yeah. yeah. So the book is just about stories. But the interesting part of my book is how it came about. In my opinion, it's the most interesting story, especially if anybody's a writer. Um, I think very business, and I always have. I grew up around it, um, and I, it's just how I think. So I started writing. I um, was flipping houses and buying rentals for in a very condensed period of time. And I went to Thailand with my family for two months because I was exhausted. I was so tired. I couldn't do any more houses. How would you pick Thailand? Because uh, I knew I we knew our way around there and it was comfortable to bring our kids. As um, as you vacationed before. Yeah, we had been there before. So we took our kids and we were there and just did whatever we wanted to. And when we came back for no apparent reason – it was like out of the blue, I wrote a 55,000 word story in like 11 days and wow. my arm was killing me. Like my, they was swollen. It you wrote was, it with, a, with your hand? Yeah. Not, not typed it? No. It wow. was ridiculous. How many notebooks did that take? Um, I don't even remember. I still have it. I ended up typing it out and printing it. I still have it. 
And I read it every now and then because surprisingly, it's not that bad. I don't know what the hell happened. I read a lot when I was in Thailand or something. And so I remember talking to my husband about it and he said, maybe you should take a class, a writing class. Hold on. Freeze there for a minute. I want to talk a little bit about the getting that story from in here onto paper. Mm-hmm. So how, how did that happen? So what- I literally just sat down and I had this idea about a couple going on a road trip because I've traveled a lot. And I just, they were, they started off friends and in the end they weren't friends anymore. And to me, it was about going across the country together. And in my head, I was traveling. And I think because I was in Thailand, I was traveling. I've, I've gone back and forth across the country a few times already. Um, I've done it with my husband a few times. So there was like a comfortableness to it. And so I just sat down and I just started writing it and I didn't care why we had landed. We had landed from Thailand and I didn't know what I was doing next. So I just did this. And then I was like, whoa. And I realized it calmed me. It calms me down a lot. So I took a class in Portland and it was during the summer and it was with this guy and there were like eight of us women. And he said, what do you want to learn? And all of us were like, we just want to write. We don't care. So we had kind of fun. And I realized I I wasn't the worst writer in the class and I wasn't quite the best, but I was pretty high up there and I was surprised. So I just started writing short stories and taking classes here and there, and I would just work on short stories, and they were fun. So everybody I was writing with was on social media, and I wasn't. And so I decided to go on social media to see what they were doing. But because my brain is a business brain, I was like, I will only friend agents, publishers, people in the business, because I didn't want to have that other outside world. And I'd throw garbage in there. I'd throw shit I'd written on there. I'd get crickets sometimes, which isn't always a bad thing. There still stings, though. No, it's a. It's sometimes people on social media won't respond because it hit too much of a chord, and that's usually when you want to pay attention. Oh, I'll remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate that feeling. It, it <laughs> yeah. feels horrible. It feels horrible, but it's not a bad thing. Sometimes when you're like me, you're a controversial person to begin with. You hit a button, and yeah. maybe you might want to mind that a little bit more. So I would do that. And then um, I think I'd been writing like a year and a half. I got an, uh, somebody, an agent, who wrote me and said, um, do you have a manuscript? And I was like, <laughs> do you ask somebody taking tennis lessons if they're going for Wimbledon? No. <laughs> you know, I was like really cocky about that. And I was like, no, I don't have that. And then another agent contacted me who had read a piece that I – well. In my class, I had turned in a paper to a different teacher, not my first teacher, a different teacher. And she, her only response to it was publish. And I had to write her and ask her what that meant. I didn't even know. And she goes, you need to submit this to magazines. And I submitted it to a magazine. And the first one I submitted got published. And I was awesome. like, cocky as shit about it now. And so then I started submitting to all kinds of magazines. And they were getting published a lot. And um I got an inquiry from a big agent, and he said, do you have a manuscript? No, I don't. And he said, remember my name. Remember this email. And when you have one, I want first right to it. And I was like, Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? Better write a manuscript. No, I didn't. Wow. I didn't do that. I just kept writing shit because I didn't really care. Uh The third person to contact me was a publishing house, and I said, I don't have a manuscript. And she said... Send me all your shit, all of it, all the garbage, the Facebook posts, everything. Send it to me. I sent her 50 pieces of crap. She sent me back a manuscript with 22 of them in the manuscript. And she said, now. She made a book out of your, you what you thought were pieces yeah. of crap. She said, you have nine months to work on it. And so I read it. I rearranged them. It took me forever to see what the point was. I didn't see the point. 
I added some things where I thought there were gaps. Um, I changed some things around. I took a piece out that would hurt my mom way too much. That's an issue. Mm -hmm. It is an issue. And then I had a manuscript and she took it and it went through three editors and it got published. And then I found out I needed to sell a thousand books. And what I am best at more than anything is selling the shit out of stuff because I'm business. That's how I think. I want to buy your book right now just from talking to you. So marketing is a big thing for me. And I knew exactly how to market myself. I knew exactly how to get myself in there. You know, take away the pals books, you know, mom boob, like nipple thing I did. I think those things are just as important as the successes. Well, of course. And I got a good story out of it. Yeah. So there's like a point to that whole thing, which is like, don't read in front of 25 year olds. They will not understand you. Also, if you just have success after success after success and you're never humiliated at all. Right. You're not going to appreciate it. No. It won't even feel real. Right. So um, I ended up then getting published and uh, I got picked up in quite a few places And then I got enough publicity to get into a trade show. And I will never forget that at the trade show, they had me on at night. And it was this special room where there were like 20 books and you had 90 bookstores come up to you and you had 90 seconds to sell that bookstore on your book. I would hate that. And the most... the most exciting thing for me was Willie Vuitton was on my right and Jane Kirkpatrick was on my left. And I've read both of them a lot. Heavy hitters. They were both. I mean, when I saw when I was next to Jane Kirkpatrick, I was like, oh, my God, I've read every one of your books, you know. And Willie Vuitton, I can't even look at him. I mean, it's just that was, whoa, what am I you doing? You made it. And Willie Vuitton, I had just bought Workers and he had been there. Oh, cool. And he totally knew about Workers and he totally knew about that world and that was i sold the shit out of that and every one of those places bought my books wow because i had 90 seconds and it i when somebody gives me a boundaries i can thrive in it Mm -hmm. so that's all i did i can't remember what i said creativity is is supposed to be triggered by those boundaries sure i I don't remember who i was talking to about it with shout out andrew lapidus but that was on a recent podcast where like parameters are good for creativity sure if you just say like i give you a piece of paper and it says draw a self-portrait just like uh where do i begin but if i say draw a self-portrait using only 10 lines like immediately your brain's like how do i do that you're solving problems and it's having those parameters really does force you into a a creativity box but it's in a good way i've heard writers say that if you sell a book before you write it you'll write the book better oh really because now you have a deadline Mm -hmm. but if you just sit down to write a book you might work on it for 10 years. Oh, but if it's so, sold and you... That's got to be true. Yeah. So maybe work on the selling part first. Get yourself a pitch. Yeah. Get yourself a pitch. That's the sure. stuff I'm bad at yeah. is, is trying to sell myself. And I... It, oh, I, you're not as bad as you think about it. You've got a great social media thing going on. You're, it doesn't feel great. It feels poor. Like it's low quality. <laughs> like Really? I, yeah. I'm constantly... Um, feeling like I should be posting and I'm not posting. It's just But like, don't you think that's actually just drive? Because hopefully. I think that's drive. Hopefully. I think a little bit of anxiety. Like here's something that I absolutely have learned 100%. I follow nobody. If I'm following anybody on social media that slightly triggers me, like I find myself judging them too harshly or I feel competitive, I unfollow them. Mm-hmm. I do it immediately because it's not healthy from my head. Yeah, it's an energy trap. And it also it it also works in the opposite way in that then I just assume they're doing better than me. Mm-hmm. And so then I work harder. 
because I don't know what they're doing, but they must be doing better than me. There's a bar in Astoria that's my number one competition in my head. It's not really, but in my head it is. I don't follow them. I've never, I don't know anything going on with that entire bar. I don't go there. I don't do anything. But in my head, they have to be doing better for me. And a couple of weeks ago, this uh, distributor came in and showed me numbers that the Oregon Liquor Commission gives out because all the alcohol we buy for the bar is registered. And I found out Workers is the number one bar in Astoria. Nice. And I was pissed because there was evidence... (laughs) that my competition wasn't my competition. You think it's going to make you slack? I don't know. Probably not. Probably but not. But I purposely don't because I want to be slightly edged. Yeah. I want – that's my drive. It's a balancing act. You yeah. want to stay just stressed enough to keep you moving yes. but not so stressed that it shuts right, you it down. Right, it shuts you down, right. That's the fine line and that's – you know, I wouldn't go on a prescription for anxiety because I would probably take all my creativity or my drive. I would make it go all the time. Yeah, I yeah. think that would be really hard for are sure. You, are you a stressed out person? Do you, do you suffer from anxiety on a regular basis? I, I don't have anxiety. I probably could use some sometimes. I, I know that when my kids were little, I used to look at other parents to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Like, is this not safe? I don't actually know. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't have a lot of it. I do have hormonal anxiety, and I recognize what that is. But in general, do I get stressed? You yeah, must. You I got get a lot stressed. going on. Yeah, I, I definitely get stressed and I don't like that in myself and I wish I could kind of make that part go away because it's a waste of my freaking time. But I'm an escape artist. I work really hard in short bursts and then I move on. So right now it's buoy 10, it's fishing go, there's tons of commercial fishermen in the bar. I work every night, seven nights a week for about two months and this winter I will not even be in the United States, guaranteed. That's just how I work. That's a good system. It's a really good system. I'm not very good with monotony and repetition. I, I'm not either. That's bores the shit yeah. out of me. It's a hard thing to deal with. Tedious. They should teach in high school how to deal with monotony. My perfect high school would be kids go to school for three hours in the morning and they're required to work somewhere for five hours a day. And they have to work in maybe like over their time in three different kind of places. They have to work like in an auto shop and a clinic and uh, like they have to work in really different places because teenagers just want to be respected. Yeah. And we don't give them enough positions to be respected. You have to earn respect. Mm-hmm. And they know that. So you, you earn respect by doing shit. Doing shit. And and I hate that grades are that final thing because I don't think it's the doesn't end doesn't work all. for very many kids. No. It worked for me. I, yeah. I liked it. Um, not in high school, actually. I didn't care about that right. so much. Making people laugh was my currency in high school. Yeah. And making sure everybody thought I was tough, I think, was probably oh, also really? important to me. That's kind of like a, a small town coast thing, too. Totally. It's a tough thing. Totally. I see that so much in the bar because I get so many fishermen in it's there. It's annoying. And, oh, God. Add alcohol to it. And it's yeah. really annoying. Oh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's really annoying. It's something that gets on my nerves so bad now. Yeah. Just because I know how much damage it can do. Yeah. And, and I recognize the parts of myself that, that I, I was never that guy. I'm right. just not. And mm-hmm. um, I've always been really non-confrontational. You were just mimicking. Exactly. Mimicking is a, you know, it's a coping strategy. Yeah. And you didn't know any other way to be. You hadn't figured out yourself yet. Exactly. I think about my husband a lot. So he's a huge mountain biker. And mm-hmm. he mountain bikes with these guys. And he's kind of the oldest, but he's really experienced. So he goes mountain biking with them. And they're always like, hey, do that, do this jump. And they all do this jump. And he's like, nah, I don't really care. And he doesn't do it. And they're breaking their clavicle and their back and their wrist. And they're doing all these things. And he's just like, I just don't really care because he's older. He's not trying to mimic what cool is. They're trying to impress him. Maybe. Oh, I guarantee it. But in the end, he's just never really cared as much as they care that they look like the big bad boys. Yeah. He's like, it's not, it's not about 
pushing my limit and breaking my clavicle. I've got a family and they do yeah. too, but it's a different thought process for him. It's it's partially a personality thing, partially an age thing, I think. Could be. And circumstances of your life. Right. When you don't really need that anymore. Right. Like nobody's really trying to challenge my autonomy. I don't right. I don't have to worry about establishing myself in society anymore. But again, when you're put with a group of people your same age, they will separate themselves out. For sure. There's no way. You put me in a room with a bunch of 50-year-old women and I'll start doing it. Yeah. I will hurt out the weak. I just do it. I I know I do it. I can actually feel it. I can tell when somebody walks in my bar and I have my eye on them. It's it's such a natural instinct. I don't know what goes on. We're social creatures. We are. That's, we're programmed to do it. Mm-hmm. And everybody does it differently. Yeah. So like you get a read on people and some other people who might not be able to sense anything about them, but you know all this personality right. stuff about them just by a, a look or a vibe they're getting right. in you or just, it's weird. Yeah. One of my bartenders said that um, I reminded them of a natural National Geographic show because when you look at a herd of um, zebras and there's a lion stalking them, the lion knows which one's the weak one, but nobody watching the show knows what it is, but the mm-hmm. lion knows. That's me in the bar. I'm looking to who the problem is. I can see it before everybody else. I'm like, you get two beers on that guy and he's a problem. So I kick him out before they become a problem. And the bartenders are like, why'd you kick him out? And I was like, that was going to be a problem. I can yeah. tell. And you, you've you developed that skill because Correct. you needed to. Because I needed to. Yeah. 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 That's pretty impressive. I think about this in politics a lot and in leadership because I kind of consider myself a little bit of a leader. And I, you know, what I tell people when they always think I've, I've th- I thought of owning a bar or whatever, and I was like, when you own the bar, you don't get to be cool. You think owning a bar is about being cool, but it's not. It's yeah. about the exact opposite. You get to fire people, you get to kick people out, and you get to be called every name under the stars. And that's actually what good bar ownership is. That's because good you're, management, you're creating, Yeah, you're creating an environment that people are comfortable in, and you have to make the hard decisions. So if you think you want to own a bar to be cool, just go to a bar. Yeah. Or maybe even be a bartender. That's what I was going to say. Try yeah. being a bartender first. Yeah. That's probably a better fit for you because bartenders are pretty cool. They're some of the coolest. Sometimes, yeah. The good ones. Yeah, the good ones that are career and look at it as a career. You yeah. know what I mean? Which yeah. they should because it's a lucrative job if you think of it as a career. People who are really good at that job are, are very impressive. Yeah. They make you feel like they actually are your buddy. and all, Yeah, like, they do. It's weird almost because yeah. I, I, I think about psychology a lot sure. and I, I'm always on the lookout for people trying to manipulate me. Sure. And that's one I like. Yeah. Like, I don't mind being manipulated into buying more beer because no. I don't mind talking to these no. fascinating people who are acting I'll like or- I'm interesting. I'll order anything that people try to upsell me because I'm impressed with the hustle. If it's good. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. I'll, I'm a t- uh, my, my bar manager and I went into a strip club in Portland. We went to a bunch of uh, strip clubs and bars. are good at this too. Yeah, they're very good. And uh, we were looking at like their alcohols they had in Portland and like what could we change up ours and stuff. And there was a woman working, and I said, what's your special at the strip club? And she said, well, we just sell a lot of PBR. And I remember thinking, you're such Fire a dumbass. I was like, look at me. I'm a mark. I just put a $300 um, purse on your counter. I look like I'm okayly done, and my teeth are all good. I'm your mark. You are should be upselling me right now like yeah. crazy, but she didn't. And so I remember being like, okay, whatever, and I ordered something. And when I lifted up my purse embedded in the actual bar – 
was the drink specials. And I remember thinking, you shouldn't be bartending because you could have made, I would have bought a $20 drink for me right now. And I would have been like, well, it's a strip club. That's how much drinks are. You know, like I would have walked away and been like, yeah, yeah. I totally would have fallen for any of that stuff. So it it amazes me with lost opportunities. Yeah, it's crazy. She might've just been having a bad day, but. She probably did, but she literally was trying to sell me a PBR. Come on. Yeah. At least a craft beer. Yeah. PBR. (laughs) It's like water. Yeah. Um, this is going by really quickly. It's already 6.35. I know. I'm a talker. Uh, it's been great, actually. Uh, let's see. I pretty much wanted to talk about writing, business, and parenting. So we've covered all three of those. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about masculinity because mm-hmm. you've raised three boys. I'm raising one boy and two girls. And I honestly, masculinity is a tough one for me. My dad, I mean, he was raised strangely and he like went above and beyond trying to like I think honestly it comes from trauma but yeah he he tried really hard to make us just like impervious to pain like, sure. um, because that's what he was taught and that's the best he knew yeah yeah 100 percent. but it's it's not a great system for the world that we live in now no it's um, hard it leaves you lonely because right. you make yourself invulnerable right and I I mean I I see it in him still like yeah. he, he, it's really hard to talk about emotional stuff Ugh. and it's painful for me sure, because uh, I don't want to see him having to live through right. any kind of pain like that again to talk about it. So my whole view of masculinity went from growing up with him where I'm just like trying so hard to be basically him. And then it, throughout my 20s was a long transition of realizing like I'm not him, don't need to be, don't want to be. No. I'm myself and right. I'm a lot less in your face about masculinity. Right. Then you were acting when you were younger because you didn't know any better and you were just mimicking what was around you. Yeah. And I think it probably came off as really strange because it's not my personality. Right. I'm really non-confrontational. Right. Um, I'm kind of harsh um, and I don't know, I can be arrogant. You're probably just truthful. Yeah, I try to be. And the people who say that they don't like people, and I'm not saying you say you're that person. I used person. to be that person. I used to talk about people like that. I well, don't anymore. I love I people. have a theory that the reason why they say that is because they don't have a, a lot of tolerance for bullshit. Yeah. They're just straight shooters, and people have not liked that from them. And so they've gotten kind of comments that have made them kind of not like people. And I was like, no, you're probably just brash because you're really truthful. And I'm really brash and truthful, but... The other thing I, you know, I have to listen to a lot of stories on the bar and I'd have to say 90% of them are just shit. They're yeah. just people complaining or try. I'm their counselor. I'm a lot of, I'm a lot of 25 year old boys, moms in the bar. And the one thing I always say to them is the biggest difference between you and I is that you care way too much. And I don't. And, and that's a hard thing to teach your children because they care so much, but I talk, I write a lot about masculinity and I write a lot about being a woman because I am, I don't have a lot of fear. I mean, they call me bossy tits in the bar. I can, I can manage a group of all different men that are hard as nails. I can get them laughing and joking and having fun and stuff. It's a lot of personality to manage. That's such a hard skill. It's really hard. It's like a brothel owner you know what i mean like it's just like yeah. like a from a movie mm-hmm. do you know what i mean oh, I know exactly i'm dolly parton yeah, yeah 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 um and i find it really fun because it's a game and the the part of the game i really like is that the guy knows i'm hustling them 
and they're okay with it. Like it's a mutual kind of hustle or whatever. Like you trying to get the stripper to upsell you a drink. Exactly. Yeah. It's a hustle and, and it's a game and we're both players. But I am raising three boys and I do think about masculinity. And I think a lot about this because I am a tough as nails mother. So my son described me. I He has a hard time communicating with words, but he has a lot of thoughts and he can't always get them out. And so I asked him to describe feelings he had in actual uh, like adjectives or or a scene so he describes loneliness as throwing a rock in the ocean because the ocean is so empty and it would be just a rock but he described me and i think it was the perfect perfect metaphor is i'm a shark swimming through a school of fish where the fish just move out of the way as i go and that's a really good metaphor for me because i am not he says i bend people to what i want them to do and that's probably really true But when it comes to masculinity and dealing with really sensitive men, because they are, I think men are more sensitive than women, quite frankly. They they certainly are more sensitive than we uh, give them credit for. Yeah, 100%. But the sharing of emotions, I mean, no matter how hard I've tried, I can't quite get them to do that still. And they, they sometimes feel like they don't feel a lot of emotions. But the one thing they did get from me is they definitely have a justice level. They definitely feel empowered to speak up for things that they think are wrong. And that's all I can wish for. And they have gone upriver on things that other people didn't agree on. And I'm kind of proud of that, too. Like what kind of things? Um, There was a kid at school that was bullying my son's girlfriend in a way online. And nobody was really doing anything about it. It was kind of subtle. And he went to the principal and that kid got kicked out of school and people turned on my son. Wow. And I was proud that he was like, nope, I don't care. They can literally fuck off. This is how we're doing it. Good for him. Yeah. So I think that those things are kind of important. But as far as how to talk about your emotions and your feelings, they're struggling with that still. They're struggling with it right now. So in particular, the things that I think about with raising boys is like violence, because that's something that is... I mean, you get two little kids together, two little boys, and they immediately just start fighting. God, like, I hated my son and they're at laughing. four years old. They're laughing the yeah. whole time. They're loving it. And I remember being that little boy. Nothing feels better. Right. But it eventually will get out of hand and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. So as a parent, I'm like, guys, knock it off. Because it's going to end in a fight. Exactly. And you're going to then deal with the fight. But there it's... are times when I think I should not stop that. I should right. let them do this because this is what their genetic code is telling them to sure. do. And right. it's they're practicing skills of interaction. and. Right. Fair play and all this stuff. They are learning through this play. I feel like I just redirected them constantly into something physical. I mean, I feel like for years we were biking with them and walking them and running them and doing sports for years. I think that's why we get our kids into sports so much because that was so complicated. Mm -hmm. But I love now that my kids are so insightful that they realize if they go for a run, they feel better. Yeah. But I had no problem with my kids in high school yelling at them to get the hell out of my house at six o'clock in the evening and not come back until nine. Mm-hmm. I want you to come back sweaty. I don't want to see your face until you do because they just had like this kind of aggression in them, some pent up, which seems natural, right? They should probably go like kill a doe. Yeah. <laughs> go persistence hunting, go chase down Correct. a deer. But we don't have that environment. And I also don't have like a wood pile for them to chop up or some rocks to move. So instead I'm like, get out of here. Yeah. But I think about masculinity because I'm such a strong female in their lives. I worry about how that will affect them. But what I'm seeing in my 20-year-old is that he speaks up for himself quite well. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to have as much of a problem as I worried about. But that's his personality because I don't think his brother is like that. 
you never know until they get challenged. Yeah, like, I know. You, you might find that when the rubber hits the road, all these skills that you've implanted in them just kind of- No, they might just come up. They might. That yeah. you never even would have expected. Like a lot, yeah. I, I have to bank on that because a lot of the parenting I do feels so passive. I feel yeah. like I'm going to try to set an example because when I just explain something to these mm-hmm. kids, they're bored by my right. talking at them and none of it seems like it's sinking in. But I'm my hope is that someday down the line, all of this work will just come to fruition. It'll bear fruit. Like the seeds that I'm planting now are, are going to eventually grow. There was this woman who lived next door to us in Portland who had two sons that would babysit my kids. They were, I don't know, maybe 10 years older. And uh, I once asked her, because I really liked her voice. I said, if you had to pick something, what would you say is like the number one thing that's made you a good parent? She said, we have dinner together every single night. That's it. I read that. You wrote that. And it, today it upset me. I was like, oh, my God, I'm a terrible dad. No, it's the key. I think I think because it's just a metaphor that means you, every day right. you check in with them. I know you're right. Every day. And we can't always do that now because my kids have jobs. But I text parent. Mm-hmm. I at least talk to every one of them at some way, somehow, even if it's like, where are you at? What, who are you with? What have mm-hmm. you eaten? Good. Done. But my husband has instilled the every night dinner. He's still inst- – like last night he pissed me off because I did not want to see – I was really mad at one of my kids. I didn't want to go to dinner and I didn't like sausage and he had cooked sausage and I was kind of annoyed and I wanted to eat in my room. Uh-huh. But I was like, no, this is my husband's thing. Every night we have dinner together. But Damn it. You're making me feel even worse because <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. Well, like, well now Melissa's not always going to want to do that. And we, Sawyer has baseball and that time. It was like, make it all these excuses because I know you're right. I, yep. I can intrinsically tell you in my heart. You have to look at each other you every are correct. day. It's the one thing. And that goes on past high school. Mm-hmm. They come home for dinner. Um, I read That's a awesome. I read a book once that was about like the successes of like nine things super successful people do, mm-hmm. and one of them that I remember so clearly because I was already doing it is they always have one night a week that's a stop block because really successful people work for themselves, which means you work if your phone is with you, you are on yeah. at all times, and every Sunday night since I can remember we have had family movie night on Sunday nights and we have ice cream. We've always done that. Sometimes we can't get the movie in, but we do the we do the ice cream thing, and we've always done it. And the reason why is that super successful people said they need a break, or they or time goes by and they haven't noticed. So that break is that one night a week they do this one thing, and so I feel like if you have maybe five or six of these things, and if you can't do anything else, you can at least say you had dinner with them, which means you had to look them in the eye. So if they're smoking weed or their girlfriend's pregnant. I don't know what the You're hell. You're going to know them. You're going to look at them and they have to look at you. Yeah. And that is super important. I, oh my God, I'm going to start doing this because, yeah. so we started renovating our kitchen mm-hmm. last January. That's I actually a, That's broke a freaking nightmare, by the way. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. It's the worst. I, I, we broke down the walls uh, the day I launched this podcast. <laughs> I missed the hell out of my kids the last uh-huh. six months because we don't have a place to gather and eat. Right. So like we, when we do family dinners there, we're like upstairs in my bedroom basically around right. a coffee table right eating on the couch watching tv and it, it's not the same it's still i still really like that mm-hmm. but yeah i i so miss the presence of just having a, a gathering space yep. for everybody it's so oddly important in in i think a family dynamic when you've mm-hmm. got i mean i feel bad for people who can't do it i mean I, it's not an every night kind of thing for my family anymore because they're getting older and stuff but it is I mean I remember when my son went to college and we had like five chairs around the table and I was like do we just put one in the corner is that what you do like it was this huge metaphor that we had always had dinner together every night yeah and um 
And it's a little hard now with the bar because I'm at the bar a lot in the evenings, especially in August, and I don't see my family as much. And it pisses me off because my kids get up at noon. Mm -hmm. So I can't even have breakfast with them. Yeah. So that pisses me off too, but I'll at least check in with them. It's already started, but. Yeah. Yeah. As much as you can try, try. Yeah, I will. I, I'm 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 recording it right now so that I'll hold myself accountable. <laughs> but yeah. I bet you're really good and you don't even know it because you're like me and you always think, how can I improve instead of realizing what you've already done? I love my taxes. This sounds so weird. I love doing taxes every year. My taxes are super complicated. I love doing my taxes too. The reason why I love them is because it's proof I did something. Mm -hmm. I can see that I've actually succeeded because I have no boss. So my taxes are my only like, oh, well, hell, look at all that work I've done. It's your That's annual review. Because I only look forward. That's all I do. I think, how can I improve? But I never really think, look what I've done. Oh, there's only the only sadness back there. Like you either compare it to what you didn't do or like that's when I find myself getting down is when I'm ruminating, thinking about things I did wrong or things I would have changed. Waste of time. Look it is forward. a waste of time. It is. Got to look forward. It is. Although, yeah, I'm writing this. I'm writing a new book and it's all stories from traveling around the world and people that I've met and. It brings up a lot of stuff, and I've had to like read old journals and watch movies of you know home videos and stuff. And it's you you end up two days later, you're still thinking about this thing. And I was like, it's not relevant to me writing the story. Yeah, but it's a lot of processing, and I'm annoyed with it. When you're writing about yourself or stories about yourself from your own perspective that involve people who are, who are still in your life now, how, do you deal with any kind of Tension. One hundred percent. My mom, when my book Licking Flames came out, my mom lives in a retirement community at like Del Webb kind of golf coursey place. And I said, Hey, you know, why don't we have like an event there? And I can read from the book and they're really funny and have like a lunch or whatever. And she said, I hope my friends never find out you wrote a book. Mm. And I didn't talk to her for a year. That probably hurt. It it actually didn't hurt. It made me super angry because my mom is like a hustler, like a businesswoman. She understands this game. And she hadn't even read the book yet. She just thought it was about her. Uh -huh. And it wasn't about her. It was about me. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no way to write and not hurt people. There's literally no way to do it. You can't. And they often say that women write their memoirs after their moms die. Uh -huh. There's a reason why. I can see why that is. Yeah. Just talk. It's... I had no idea how much backlash I would get yeah. from even just in with my own in, within my own mind. Right. Uh, when I talk about some traumatic stuff from my past. One hundred percent. God, and it's the reason is because I love my parents. Yeah, and of it's, course. It's and I don't want them to feel pain. It's just like I was talking about how I don't want to make them talk about their trauma because sure. it's painful for me. Right. But that stuff shaped me, and so yeah. it's it's part of my story, and I kind of have to talk about it if I'm yeah. telling my story. If you're truly telling your story, you have to talk about it, and yeah. I don't. I mean, they say, you know, kill your darlings. That's such a like thing in writing. And they're talking about fictional characters, the characters you love, you kill them. But you have to kind of do that in memoir as well. Yeah. You have and to. They might still be alive. <laughs> they will be still alive and they'll read it and they'll tell you it wasn't true. That's what I'm the most afraid of is people trying to make you look like a fool. Right. By, or... But it's always your truth. Yeah. And that's really the only thing you can do. It's not the truth. When I hear people say, but it's the truth, I'm like, no, I don't know what that is anymore. There's yours yeah. and there's mine. I mean, there's a reason why in high school, when there's a fight, they kick both kids out of school. 
They don't kick one, they kick both out because they can't find the truth. There's yeah. no way to do it. Jordan Peterson says, um, tell the truth or at the very least, don't lie. Yeah. And, and that's a pretty powerful distinction. Sure. Because the truth is only as good as your memory. Right. I know whenever I'm kicking anybody out of the bar, I'm like, just get out. And they're like, but can I explain? No, never. You're doesn't done. Matter. No, it doesn't matter anymore. We're way past that. But they, they think they can somehow explain it out of me. And I was like, nope, I got all my evidence. And I, at the end of the day, I don't care. Yeah. So just get out. But I, I don't know how to not hurt people in the process. I haven't quite done it immensely yet. But I have definitely heard people say what I've written is not true. And I'm like... It almost feels to me, like it is. It almost feels like there's a direct correlation between like the number of people who are going to be upset by the mm -hmm. writing and the amount of success you may gain from it because sure. the best stuff is provocative. Right. And the people who will hurt you probably more than that are the people you thought should support you who didn't. Like I have an aunt who um, or she's my husband's aunt who literally has just turned villainized me every time I'm successful at anything I've done. It's always like I got sent to um, the Women's March after Trump was inaugurated um, to write for a magazine. And so her and my cousin were talking about the Women's March and they the aunt was saying, you know, I loved that idea until I heard Diana went. And, and that's because those are the things that hurt more because she should be supportive, but you can never convince her to be. Those are the true haters. They are true haters, but they're family. That's and they, 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 yeah, don't, that's they only hate your success. They don't care what the truth in your book is. You could write anything you wanted. You could make them out to be a saint and they still hate you only because you're successful. I find that the big, I can't fight it. And that's what slays me. Do you think it's rooted in envy? Yeah, 100% it, it roots in envy, but it just teaches me that I got to be supportive of other people. Whether That's why I block people if I feel competitive towards them because I don't yeah. want to be that woman. I don't want to be that aunt. I it, want... It's hard to watch somebody younger than you, especially if you're related, watch them grow up and mm -hmm. then surpass you oh, in life. Yeah. Ooh, that's got to sting. Yeah, I can imagine. I don't, I'm an only child, but I can Shout out to your aunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine with siblings it would be that way. I'm, I'm an only child, so I haven't felt that. But I, I love watching my siblings succeed. Really? Nothing makes me feel better. That's great. I really, truly, I want so much success for them. Right. Well, that's a good relationship. But my my youngest, his IQ is off the charts. He's super smart, and his and he's completely ridiculous because he's 14, and his brothers make fun of him all the time. And I was like, be careful. That one's the smart one. He could he's, be your boss someday. He's really smart. So watch what you're saying because he's ridiculous. But I don't have siblings, so I don't understand any of that. I, I usually feel pretty happy that other people succeeded. But I definitely – there are some writers. They're just they're just fucking bitches. I just oh, can't sure. stand them. They've come after me so many times. I don't, I don't wish them well. Yeah. I should and I know I should be more supportive because they're women writers. And I should be like, that's wonderful. But behind the scenes, they were just absolutely brats. I'm so tired of identity politics. It's hard for me. Um, I I was very into identity politics, like in college and fresh out of college. And we're supposed to be. We all are at that age. That's what wasn't. college is for. Yeah. Yeah. And, but and I felt like it was like my generation's job to bring that into the mainstream. Sure. And we've done it, and it went a little far. <laughs> well, yeah, it's gone so far now that people don't trust anything they read. Exactly. And that's really a shame. They're just turning off. And it's less. It's lost. It's created a situation where all other factors lose credibility like right. your identity now is your whole resume like right. if you're not 
if you don't check certain boxes, you're right. not allowed to have a voice. Right. And that's just bullshit. I'm getting really into not apologizing. Uh-huh. That's a new thing for me where I'm like, I don't want to see some people that I respect in politics or that have a name from. Don't apologize. Keep going. Just keep going. Screw them. There, uh, there's no way people aren't going to come after you. And that's not good because you should apologize when you, well, if you were wrong. sincerely fuck up. You yeah. know what I mean? But not if you I, – I think there's an important line to draw when – Maybe don't apologize if you stand by what you said and what right. you did. And you can even apologize that you were misinterpreted or whatever, but you yeah. don't have to take back what you said if you weren't wrong. I had Vice Magazine fly up from um, L.A. They flew up a writer and a photographer to um, Portland. They came to Astoria to cover Meet Bingo at Workers. Wow. And it was a really big deal. And I worked. That is a big deal. Vice is huge. Yeah. I pitched them and it came through and it worked and I worked at that. And they came and um, my bartenders took them out and they had they stayed in a room and they took photos and it was really fun. And then the article came out and half of that article was about me and how much the town hated me. Really? And I was furious because I felt I felt duped. Bamboozled. I felt really duped. And I called the writer on it because I was like, what the fuck? I am not workers. You wrote about me bingo and workers. I'm not that. I am the current caretaker of this bar. That's it. I'm not it. And you wrote about that. And they're like, it was salacious. It was it was hot. It was Why is that a justification? I, I, I understand know. it's a business, but that it But I learned a lot. It was a good human lesson. Beings. That's yeah. still not a I would feel like such a piece of shit I for was doing that. Furious. And I get embarrassed of that article every single time. And she's like, I made you out to be like a badass. And I was like, I don't need that. Just tell I the have, truth. I'm my own person and you came to cover me being <laughs> I just don't see how that's related. But I learned. I learned a lot from that. And I learned, okay, if you're going to be up front, you got to learn to take that people are going to mix you with whatever subject you're talking about immensely. Yeah. Your book, you're going to call you out. They're going to call you a liar. They're going to call you a thief. They're going to call you every single thing. And don't apologize. That is a lot to handle. I know. But I think you're doing better than you think when you talk about this I'm trying. social media presence and uh -huh. parenting. The fact that you're thinking about it, you're already a step ahead of what a lot of people don't do. Public perception is is always something that has been big for me. I got in big trouble when I was a junior in high school mm -hmm. and um, for MySpace, mm -hmm. made a MySpace profile for one of my teachers and it like blew up and it was completely uncalled for because I was 17 and yeah. I thought I was being funny. Correct. I was watching a lot of Comedy Central at the time. Sure. I mean, it Which was... Which was filled with racist jokes. Oh, yeah. yeah Comedy I, Central is Reno like... Reno 911. It was my yeah. favorite show. And sure. it's like... But... And that's... That was a different time. And I hate when people say that because it's cultural relativism. But it was. It really was. It really was. I'm reading books about travel written by female authors because they're my, like... the I'm writing a travel book, basically. And I read this book from 2004 when this woman went to India, and she doesn't mean to sound racist, but it sounds really racist. And I know that that's not her intention. She's actually trying to be funny. Mm -hmm. But it was 2004. Ignorance was more acceptable then. Like, yeah. to just not know was more acceptable. Now, mm -hmm. you need to know. Uh, right. You can't make a joke. Well, and you grew up here, right? Yeah. So when my friend has a great process thought process about racism she came to san francisco she was from georgia and she lived in san francisco and she'd be like people here talking about racism nobody knows there's no black people that can afford san francisco she's <laughs> like i grew up in georgia mm -hmm. you don't understand anything you're talking about and i was like yeah 
So until you're around people and you've gotten an opportunity to meet them and talk to people and you just don't have the faintest fucking idea. No. I have a gay bartender that people can't tell that he's gay in the slightest bit. And guys come in all the time and make little like homophobic jokes about him. And then he'll be like, this is how he handles all of it. He goes, come get my phone number at the bar before you leave. And they get all like thrown off. And I was like, you don't know who the fuck you're talking to. Yeah. You think you're safe. You think you're in a safe zone and you're making shit up and you're hurting people and you just don't know. Yeah. But if he was black, you wouldn't have done it. Not because you could see it. But you, they're not. there's nobody black around here. So you don't really know how you feel about racism until you're actually get out into the world and out of this small little tiny cave we all live in. Yeah. You know, that's pretty white. Very white. We're really white. There's quite a few Hispanic people here too. And, but no, not a whole lot of black people. But probably people. not your next door neighbor. Not mine. Not not many. No, it's it's white. We're white. We're totally community. white. And so the idea that we have a lot of opinions on racism sometimes makes me think, makes me want to call a little bullshit every now it's and then. It's a little bit virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. I think it there's really some is. of that going on. For sure. I try hard not to do that too. Sure. Which also is hard because it's like we are supposed to virtue signal. That's sure. part of how we interact socially. Sure. But it's disgusting. Some people are so into virtue signaling. That's all they do. That's well, become their identity. In this book that I'm writing, I'm trying really hard not to romanticize other cultures. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard because people are going to think it's racist. And I'm like, no, people are pieces of shit everywhere. everywhere. And I'm going to treat us all like we are all humans of the same race, creed, religion, whatever. Because at the end of the day, we are all exactly the same, which means there are shitty people everywhere in the world. Yes. Yeah. And. I think white people, there's so much white guilt. Yes. Uh, as there should have been because, we, you know, slavery We've happened. probably gone through stages of white guilt over time yeah. and not known it. You but know? it's caused people to forget that we're all one. We're right. all one race. We, right. So the idea that, like, white people can't have an opinion on racism, that's no good. Uh, really, anything that makes a distinction between one person or another, you're not allowed to talk, and you are because of how you look, or anything like that right. is, is bullshit, and right. including racism against white people. It, right. Like, it's all racism. We all could just be better about just being nice to each other. Well, we can try. Yeah. Sometimes, though, you don't change things by being nice. That's true. That's a good so point. So that's I'm sometimes kind of brash because I'm like, I, I don't have enough time in my day to get it through your damn head. Yeah. And But I also, when you were talking about masculinity earlier, there was this thing that I was So there was this contractor who was working on my building and he always treated me like shit whenever I was around him and he was doing a really big job. And I couldn't understand part of the contract because I don't see things three dimensionally like on a, on architectural plans. I just, my brain doesn't quite do it. So I told my husband, I think you need to come to the meeting because the guy is really condescending to me and it really pisses me off. So we were sitting around the table and the guy uh, belittled me right in front of my husband. And I looked at my husband and I looked at him and my husband took over the conversation and finished the conversation so we could sign the contract and he could leave. I jumped on my husband and said, what the fuck? Why did you not call him out on that? And he goes, because I was trying to get through the meeting and just get it over with. And I said, he's going to keep doing that until a man gets him to stop. He's not, I can, anytime I say anything, I'm crazy, but it needs a man to step in and to call him out on talking to me like that. Now, my husband didn't want to get in a fight with him. He's the only one that could do that job in all of Astoria. So we needed him, and my husband knew that. So he was in a really tough place. I think you're both right. We were both right. And in that instance, my husband was probably more right because then we got the job done. But But you didn't teach that guy a lesson. He's probably still talking down to women. He is, but I'm pretty sure. That's not your job. He would have at 
he would have stopped talking to me and maybe thought about it the next time he had a meeting. And so when you talk about masculinity, that is something I've taught my children. Good. If you see somebody doing something to a girl or a woman and you don't step in, you're doing it to that girl or that woman. Perfect. That's actually exactly where I was trying to take that conversation yeah. is there are parts of masculinity that are so crucial to society. Mm -hmm. Things like being honorable and, and yeah. being chivalrous and, right. and standing up for people who are weaker, right. which sometimes is women, sometimes it's not. Yeah, but sometimes it's other men. Yeah, course, sometimes sure. it's other men. It's yeah. just about being honorable. Yeah. And it's I, I don't want the baby to get thrown out with the bathwater. Right. Whereas toxic masculinity is one thing, a very real thing that I fucking hate. Um, benevolent masculinity should be protected, I think. Yeah. And it's, and it's, I think that as we're raising sons, we should still be able to talk about that and think about that and, and realize the benefits of raising strong men. Right. Exactly. Who have very high moral aptitudes yes. and want it. And integrity. Yeah. Because I would be, I would feel as if I failed if I raised three boys that didn't try to help others. Because I tell them all the time, you are entitled because you are merely born with blonde hair and blue eyes and I am your mother. You will have more than a huge, all of your friends in Astoria, you already have more than. If if you don't get that when you grow up, your job is to pass that on, I don't know, I, I failed. Yeah. So you better go help people with all this shit. That's beautiful. Yeah. Anyway. It has been two hours. Yes, I'm sure that's a long time. I'm positive. That was really, really enjoyable. Thank oh, you good. so much I'm for glad. coming. Um, anything else you want to get out there before we uh, take off? No. You should give uh, any kind of Instagram, Facebook, social yeah. media things. People can get in contact with you or check out your stuff. Yes. You're, oh, right now. Yeah. Oh, at Workers Tavern at Gmail is my email if anybody wants to send me anything. But Workers Tavern is on Instagram and Facebook, and so am I, Diana Kirk. All right. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you, you for inviting me. Absolutely. Ciao. Come back anytime. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ramble by the River. I'm your host, Jeff Nesbitt, and if you enjoyed the show today, go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Another couple ways, go on over to ramblebytheriver.com, click on the donation link, and the last way is to go over to patreon.com slash ramblebytheriver and subscribe. Thank you so much for being a part of the Ram fam. I love you guys. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Say yeah. yeah, if you're on a train, say yeah.